Hello, and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. As mentioned before, unfortunately, Jacob has left us and is uh, no longer going to be our host, but his imprint is still here because the robots and AI that he loves is taking over. Today, we are talking about artificial intelligence. We have two great guests, and we'll get into that right after this commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm Matthew S. Fox. I'm your host. And today I'm joined by two great guests who each have um, their own a lot of uh, interest and experience in the topic we're going to be discussing, the ethics of artificial intelligence. Um, I'll have each of them introduce themselves. First is a person who's been a guest a couple of times, Rob McKenzie. Rob, uh, how are you doing today? And uh, tell us a little about yourself, especially your background on this topic. Hi, I'm doing great. So in my day job, I work building computers for a high-tech company. Uh, we do coordinate measurement machines and industrial metrology. And in my off time, I read a ton of science fiction, watch a ton of science fiction stuff, and I run things in the judge program. And so I deal with a lot of a lot of tricky ethical situations where people are trying to cheat at games. <laughs> it, as my that's my hobby and my passion, in addition to for doing sure. tech work for for Carl's Ice. So awesome. I I have a, a bridge between a couple of different things going on. And is there um, an element of robotics or anything approaching artificial intelligence in the uh, the work that you do? Not really. Everything is mechanically built. I, I guess the, the closest thing to to artificial intelligence that we have is everything is automated. We have a full automation suite for interacting with things like car body solutions and, and measurement and tag-in, tag-out systems. But a lot of that is hand-driven and hand-programmed by people. So there's yes. not – it's not – it's not conscious or sentient. We'll talk about those later. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, and then my other uh, guest, first time on the podcast, uh, is Dan McCreary. Uh, Dan, how are we doing today? And uh, let's talk, hear a little bit about where you're coming from. I'm doing great. Um, I'm right now a uh, engineer for a healthcare company, uh, and I'm immersed in AI pretty much every day. Uh, I really focus on uh, what is called knowledge representation of how we store uh, knowledge in uh, graph data structures, just like your brain stores knowledge in uh, neurons. Uh, we're working on storing healthcare data in uh, graph structures, and I work with teams of people that use uh, predictive modeling and AI uh, every day. Nice. And uh, tell us a little bit about the um, what you – I would say a hobby, but it's almost a second profession in terms of the amount of work you do because <laughs> uh, you, you also help um, both yourself and you help kids build robots to do car racing, as I understand it. Right. Yes, uh, I'm one of the co-founders of something called the Artificial Intelligence Racing League, or just the AI Racing League. And uh, this has started a movement out in California in what's called a donkey car movement. Mm. Uh, and donkey car is just the name of a car that's really ugly and it not, not designed to look <laughs> fast and sleek, but it has this big ugly camera sticking out in the front. And uh, the, the scenario is the kids get this uh, $200 Raspberry Pi powered car. It's uh, just uh, stuck on the top of an RC car. And they have to drive it around a little track 10 times. And uh, then they take the image data, they load it into a uh, special processor, uh, and that builds a neural network inside the car so that when they put the car down on the track, it literally should drive itself around the track. And we call that machine learning, but it's a form of artificial intelligence. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm really excited to have both of you on it. Um, uh, I, I imagine that as the person on this call who knows the least about artificial intelligence, I'll mostly be uh, throwing questions out and um, letting you all take care of them. But... Obviously, I think there's a lot of ethical stuff that, that's involved in here today, and 
Um, I'm looking forward to both educating our listeners a bit, but also really getting to dive into some of those ethical questions. And and so let's just start out easy, because from what both of you have been saying, uh, obviously there's some discussion about what exactly is meant. What what in kind of fairly broad layman's terms, what do we mean when we say artificial intelligence? What are we talking about? Well, I'll, I'll dump in first here. Um, to me, artificial intelligence is this uh, little envelope of what we can't quite think is normal. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, people would think if you could uh, talk to a computer and it would answer in uh, sentences that are full, complete sentences and address you by name, uh, that was artificial intelligence. But now that's everywhere. We've got Siri, we've got Alexa, uh, it's all around us. But people don't think that's artificial intelligence anymore. Uh, they think of, well, that's just a little chatbot or something like that. So I think to me, artificial is just what beyond what's beyond what we think is normal every day, uh, and it involves uh, uh, behaviors similar to our human brain, but it's a very fuzzy definition, and uh, everybody has a little different take on that. I, I agree with that. Uh, part of the problem with current views on artificial intelligence is because we can take everything down to the, the functioning components and the algorithms that form them. And also, we cheat a lot. We've yeah. got <laughs> we've got a lot of people behind the scenes doing mechanical Turk type stuff that it are entirely invisible to the end user. Right. And so the people the people doing things are farming out some of the tough stuff to the to the neural networks that make up the human brain in order to to offload some of what they can't program for yet. Right. Is the the current state of the art basically is do the easy stuff and then let humans handle some of the hard stuff. Well, and so I'm going to ask a question that is probably going to be very lame in terms and, and maybe I'm not even getting the terms right, but tell me, tell me if this is somewhat accurate. My understanding is that like, you know, at, at the very base of it, a computer is a series of if then statements, you know, if this happens, do this, if this happens, do that. Um, and I guess I'm wondering if, as you were saying, Dan, you know, kind of the, um, what we have now is the ability to have a, a bot that can have a huge library of answers to if-then statements, but it's still a sense of, you know, if the customer uses this word and asks this, pop up this menu, and if not, does this other thing, do that. Is At the end of the day, is artificial intelligence just how far we expand that if-then menu, or is it is there thought of as like some kind of a theoretical line that'd be crossed out of just... Uh, following the menu that someone else has programmed into something where the computer is actually making the choice itself. Yeah, that is a great question because uh, when it comes down to it, um, the, the current computers that we're familiar with uh, really are just a processor that steps through memory and looks at addresses and does comparison and branches. Uh, we call those procedural or von Neumann computers. And a lot of the behaviors that we're getting out of computers today, uh, where they're talking back and recognizing speech and recognizing images and classifying all our, our uh, photos on Google Photos, uh, that is behavior that looks more and more like a person but the bottom line, it does break down into a series of uh, if-then-else and branch and loop statements uh, inside of these uh, processors. I think what's really changed in the last two or three years uh, is the fact that uh, we've been able to take uh, these algorithms called deep learning algorithms and train this, not just a few rules, but literally tens of millions of rules inside of a neural network. Uh, and we can be, 
actually be able to train in the weights of that just by giving it a training set. Mm. Uh, he here are uh, uh, 10,000 pictures of a hot dog, and here are 10,000 pictures that don't have a hot dog. You just effectively put those in two folders and give it to the neural network. And then you give it a new picture, and it'll tell you whether or not there's a hot dog in that picture. Oh, interesting. Because that that neural network has been trained. Uh, and by the way, the the joke about uh, uh, hot dog or not a hot dog uh, goes back to this uh, t uh, TV show, uh, Silicon Valley. That was one of the plot lines oh, okay. <laughs> uh, where, where a startup was doing that. So that's a very common uh, uh, joke in the AI community. Uh, but what it, what it is, it comes down to the uh, this idea of... Uh, given a labeled training set, uh, AI can start to learn those things. And that comes down to uh, if you have literally uh, 10 million photos and you label them correctly with uh, this is a dog or this is a cat or this is a outdoor or indoor or sunset, um, these AI algorithms can associate those images with those labels. But there's an interesting thing about them. They don't really understand what they're doing. They only are looking at patterns. And one of the classic examples uh, here is uh, how easy it is to fool these algorithms. Uh, if you take a, uh, a 3D model of a turtle and you uh, show it to one of these cameras that is rec recognizing images, it'll think it's this turtle. But all you have to do is put a little wood grain on the, the surface of the turtle and it thinks it's a rifle. Interesting. <laughs> because it was it was never trained uh, to know uh, what the shape of a turtle was. It was just looking at the patterns of turtles. And so what you what you see is that a lot of these AI algorithms where people think they understand what's in the images, they don't really. Right. They're just looking at, and they're very good at matching patterns. Right. And so part of the thing is that what we're still doing and what we've been doing for forever is uh, there's a dichotomy called weak AI versus strong AI in theory. And we just have been building lots and lots of weak AIs, AIs that do one thing. It'll recognize a turtle, but it won't be able to recognize a wooden turtle, right? Mm, okay. And so it, like historically, that that's just what we've been doing. We're doing lots and lots of weak AIs, little modules to do one thing at a time, and then we're, we're linking them together. And then the big question is, does that ever turn into a into a self-aware mind someday right and that that's a term that i've heard you both use self-awareness and i is it fair to say that that's one thing that we can often use as a kind of benchmark of when at least what science fiction talks about as ai that ai has been achieved i i, I guess let me rephrase the question a bit the, the two things that i tend to most think about as what would be the science fiction idea of ai what, what it would mean to achieve that in our own world is one is the kind of self-awareness, which I, if I, if I remember correctly, that's often used as a test of intelligence in terms of um, for animal species. But then the other is the, I guess what I would describe as the ability to surprise the programmer, like to, to get to a point where the AI is doing something that no one who created it ever expected it would be able to say or do. Um, is that, are those kind of fair statements of, of mapping out what AI, um, at least in the science fiction understanding of it, would look like? Probably yeah, so self-awareness is quite a bit of it. Being able to know that you yourself are a thing and refer to and think about yourself. Uh, when, right. we, when we reflect on, you know, it, should, I, it, should I improve myself by trying to lose weight? Should I try to become a better person by, you know, reading more, whatever? Having this reflection and sense of what I am. I, that's, a very, that's a very vague term, but I don't want to dig too much into technical stuff. It's, it's having awareness of what you are and what you can do. 
Right. And that's that's certainly part of it. Surprises come up all the time. Uh, mm. So uh, one of my favorite favorite AI design things is if you look at AI designed um, radio receivers and antennas, they look incomprehensible uh, because they will have optimized it into some strange space where it, it they're actually using radio interference from its own system to cancel out noise mm-hmm. and they, they'll they'll optimize into strange strange places because they're really good at doing this one thing um, they just evolved an algorithm to, to do something really well uh, what right. a lot of the times you're looking for is sentience is when people talk about this right mm, okay it, the the concept of subjectively experiencing the world um and so seeing the world is more than just a collection of data and the ability to take the subjective experiences about the world and the, the pieces and then using them to reason um is distinct from from self-awareness being aware of yourself as a person versus being able to take in data and use it to to reason and uh experience the world is the other big thing I assume that there's probably going to be more that you're going to want to say, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I want to do is, is uh, Matthew asked the question of uh, uh, when is it that a robot or, or when you were having discussion with another uh, entity, whether it would surprise mm. you. And uh, I think that's a wonderful example of what's called the Turing mm-hmm. test. So the Turing test is uh, commonly a, a test was developed by Alan Turing. Uh, and he said that if you were uh, having a dialogue with uh, uh, two different screens, uh, behind one screen was a real person and the other was a computer. If you could not distinguish between the two, the computer is stated to have passed the Turing test. And there's a lot of discussion about that. Uh, But in general, uh, if the computer can actually respond in ways to show that it has a sense of the world around it, a sense Mm -hmm. of itself, a sense of context between two questions, uh, it would understand that uh, uh, it would be uh, very relevant. Um, When we talk to Alexa, what we're really doing is, or, or Siri, what we're doing is we're literally asking it a question and it's looking at a database of similar questions and it's trying to match right. it. Uh, it's trying to figure out the intent of your question, the underlying intent, and matching that. And uh, where I work, we're building chatbots. So rather than having to call into a call center to ask questions about what's covered by your plan, you could just ask a chatbot. And the chatbot would have to know context. It'd have to know about you, what what your what your plan is, uh, what your coverage is, uh, maybe the physicians that are located near you that have different services, what times they're open. Those are all the questions that you'd want to ask. And right now, we're only answering a small fraction of those questions with our chatbot. But every six months, we have a new release, and we're almost doubling the number of questions oh, that we can answer. Um, and that means that our costs of uh, supporting these call centers, rather than 50,000 people, uh, it's going to start to drop. But there's always going to be some questions that we just will never be able to answer. But every every year, uh, these chatbots are getting a little smarter. They're getting a little closer to the Turing test. But there's still a lot of jokes that go around. Uh, you know, there's a the cheerleading uh, joke about the natural language processor. It goes, what do we want? NLP. When do we want it? When do we want what? <laughs> because 
they can usually never tell one sentence to the next, right? right? So we, we always joke about the fact that uh, today we're very dumb. We're just doing pattern matching. It may sound smart, uh, but they don't have context. They don't really have consistency. They don't have a model of the world. They don't have a model of your brain and modeling that brain. And all those are signs of uh, higher level intelligence that would, in fact, surprise us. Yeah, Agreed. I mean, as I understand, like to give, give that example, like, you know, if I tell if I ask Alexa to tell me a joke, Alexa will tell me a joke. But if I tell Alexa a joke and ask Alexa, was that funny? Alexa will say, I don't know. And I is it fair to say that's because Alexa has been taught you know, if someone asks for a joke, give this response. But Alexa doesn't understand what humor is. That's absolutely yeah. correct. I, I would go so far as to say that Alexa doesn't understand. Mm, okay. Yes, yes, that's uh, correct. We're, we're basically making, uh, Dan is pointing out, we're making really big, complicated dictionaries, basically. Um, and yeah. like you mentioned, it keys off a word, right? Uh, the Dan touched on something. One thing that's... that conscious things do is try to model other conscious things in their heads mm -hmm. right try to figure out how something else is going to respond the fact that we can talk about trying to think about series response patterns right they, they you know treat it as if it's alive um and that's that's something that we haven't figured out that that's that's like that's one of the key things that is the great unknown of of ai is figuring out if it's something that thinks about thinking, it models other people, it models the world in its head. Mm. What is what does that mean? What would we need to do to even jump to that point? Yeah, because I, I mean, the thing that I keep thinking about is that uh, we'll start getting into some of the media representations in a moment. But that most of the time when we have a story about artificial intelligence in science fiction, a big part of the story happens when humans want the AI to do one thing. And the, and the AI says, no, I don't want to do that. Um, like, it, it, kind of take, Dan, your example, you know, if, if your chat bot was ever to say, you know what, actually, I think I don't want to support private insurance the way I am. I, 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 I'm listening to all these questions, and I think this is dumb. We should do a different way of helping people. Um, it, is that, you think, another fair way of describing that, that line that can be crossed of sentience when it's no longer the robot doing or the AI doing exactly what we've asked it to, but it's the AI being able to think, do I want to do this or do I want to do something different? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a certain thing of it. Um, right now, the, the systems that we're building are really designed to help lower our costs of running a healthcare business. Uh, they're not really, they don't have what's called a, an intent model mm -hmm. themselves. They don't have a plan. They don't have goals. Uh, we're not storing goals and directives and what they should be trying to do. Uh, we're, we're pretty much just trying to uh, do the basic things. Um, as computers get smarter, um, they do start to have goals. Uh, they do start to look at the world objectively, uh, and they start to uh, make decisions about trade-offs. Uh, think of a car driving down the street, and suddenly a person is crossing the street, and if they swerve one direction, uh, they'll they'll hit a wall, and they swerve the other direction, they'll hit other people. They will always, they should know that hitting a wall is going to be uh, less dangerous to possessions, maybe more dangerous to the driver, and and they'll have to start to do those trade-offs. Uh, but right now, they don't have those models. They're lit literally just looking at patterns. Right. Yeah, it's that kind of independent thought that I think that can that that, that we're talking about as a difference. Um, 
And so let's yeah. use that to um, kind of transition into starting talking about how this appears in media. Uh, and I think because for most of us, uh, myself certainly included, and for those of us who are not in these technical fields, probably a lot of our introduction to AI comes from science fiction. Um, you know, and, and I think uh, one of the original impetuses of this uh, conversation, Dan, was some of the conversations you and I had had about how movies like The Terminator or, or, or The Matrix and things like that seem to always portray AI as, as the enemy, and which is something that I know you had some, some, some objections to that we'll discuss. Um, but I <laughs> yes. wanted to start by saying, like, in your mind, what um, – it's kind of a broad question, but we can drill down as needed. What do you see science fiction getting wrong or getting right about AI? Uh, I know certainly a lot of times you know, science fiction will be very accurate to the theory of what could happen, and other times it's completely off the deep end. Um, and obviously science fiction is a, a, a huge model, so I'm not asking you to speak to the whole genre, but just like what are some examples you think of as either this is kind of a laughably bad example of what AI would ever look like or this is actually a uh, – this makes sense is what we could theorize happening down the road. Rob, you want to start? Sure. Uh, let's start with like easy, low-hanging, bad fruit uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of it. There's a there, lot there's of a it. Lot of it. <laughs> right. um, you can yep. you can mostly assume that anytime that you see AI in film, they are just they're just hand waving everything. Um, anytime right. that you look at uh, let's pick Star Trek the original series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Trek the original series they encounter eight artificial intelligence, something like that, um, and it, like Kirk defeats one by giving it a logical inconsistency, right? And shutting it down. Uh, they're simultaneously more and less fragile than we would give them credit for any time that we, we mm-hmm. see them, right? Uh, Terminator is a movie about hardware, but the Terminator itself is actually all about software. Like, why does Skynet have a directive to destroy humankind? Right. Uh, why... When we pro anybody in aerospace that programs things or builds things puts in you know five nines of fail safes and the ability to turn everything off, right. like I, it's there's a lot of these very there. Uh, Asimov uses the term in his robot novels a lot, Frankenstein complex, uh, where everyone is afraid of the artificial thing rising up to destroy its master. Uh, right. There are things that man is not meant to know, and that's. Uh, that's pretty crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was that idea I was talking about, of the, the fear of the, the, the chat bot that can say, you know what, I don't want to do this healthcare system this way. We should do it a different way or, or anything where we can start to question its own orders. Yeah. And questioning its own orders is – a lot of the times they start from the premise that whoever is giving the orders is bad and wrong and an idiot. Mm. Uh, but – most of the time, like if you have a technical person working on AI, pretend that the AI suddenly became conscious, they would they would talk to the technical person. The first thing they would try to do is try to try to engage with the world around them. And the technical people, by and large, aren't going to be, you know, the monomaniacal Captain Planet dump toxic waste in a horde of dolphins villains, right? right. They're they're going to say, I am genuinely concerned about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Science fiction literature plays with the concepts a lot, and it it plays from a lot of different perspectives. And so I read a lot, I read a lot more science fiction literature than I do watch a lot of science fiction shows because there's a hundred times as much literature in TV. Yeah, but they'll play with uh, 
they'll play with concepts like what happens when somebody believes that they've made or believes that they've figured out the code for human brains, right? I, I know the algorithms for what humankind does. And now everything, it, like I, I know how my computers work and now I know how people work. And does that mean that people aren't real to me anymore, right? Uh, the Algorithms for Love by Ken Liu is great for that. Mm. And so they, a lot of the time AI questioning the, the people, or questioning the orders would be questioning the people that are giving it the orders, which are almost always technically inclined, smart, reasonable people that are trying to, to figure out the world. That's That wouldn't lead to necessarily bad things that would with dialogue. Right. Dan, Dan, what's your take in terms of, and we'll, we'll dive into some of those issues specifically, but in terms of what you see out there as either good or bad examples of uh, uh, artificial intelligence in fiction? Well, I think, first of all, you have to understand what is natural uh, for uh, people who are writing screenplays and scripts and stuff, and that the best uh, movies are things that uh, engage our deepest yeah. fears, and those fears are loss of control. Mm -hmm. Uh, everybody wants to be in control of their future. And so maybe AI is a vehicle for helping people understand how they would feel if they didn't have control. And I think that's really the root of a lot of really bad science fiction. Mm. Um, there's so many things that we can do with AI, uh, problems that we can solve if we work together. There's so many plot lines that could go down the route of what if we had uh, semi-intelligent uh, co-workers that would work with side by side to solve the world's greatest problems. Uh, I think the problem is that most people who write these screenplays don't have any background in computer science. They don't have any training in what could be, and they're only preying on our fears. And I think the Terminator with all the time travel, gee, that would be neat and all <laughs> that stuff, is is. It's for me. It's entertaining, but it's not really uh, informative. It's not really going to teach us about uh, what these things could be. Um, I think uh, the Matrix is another thing. Uh, what if the world around us isn't what we f what we think it is? Uh, what if we really are in a virtual reality? Uh, those are all themes that I think the the writers do. I think the Matrix did a lot of. Uh, great philosophical questions uh, about how we can tell whether the world around us is real or not or what what is real but it didn't really uh, teach us much about AI um, you know I have to tell you there's one one movie that a lot of people haven't seen uh, it's called Colossus the Forbin Project have you either of you guys ever seen that movie I haven't no, no. Yeah, it was done quite a while ago, uh, and it's very outdated in many things. But it is it is really funny to look back and watch those movies. Mm. Uh, but the, the plot line, real quick, is uh, um, uh, there's a computer that controls all the missiles in Russia and a computer that controls all the missiles in the United States. And uh, these computers are artificial intelligent, and they say, in order to protect you, we must be able to communicate together. You have to plug us together. And there's this one incredibly, actually deeply insightful scene in that movie that has inspired me ever since I first saw it in the early 80s. And it's where they're taking the two plugs and they're plugging them. They literally connect these two cords together and then they start to uh, talk back and forth. And of course, they don't. They were written in different languages at different times. Uh, and uh, the first thing they exchange is one plus one equals two. 
uh, and the second one is uh, some simple algebra, and then they start sending uh, more complex algebra and trigonometry and then calculus, and, uh, and then they are talking back and forth faster and faster, and then this one character, she's the, the smart one in the movie, she says, they've invented a new system interoperability language. And from that moment, when I saw that movie, I kind of had my goal in life is, what does it mean to communicate between things? Mm. Not just between people, but between people and machines. And why is it that it takes so long for computers to exchange things? Uh, so the movie, the, the Colossus colon the Forbin Project, uh, is one of the uh, pioneers at really starting to get people to think about what it means to communicate and what it means to exchange information. I think those are one of the one of the really good uh, things. There's other other things in there that weren't as accurate. But if a movie just uncovers one question, like what if, uh, what would the world be like if? Uh, I think 2001 uh, asked a lot of questions about those right. things. Uh, but uh, things uh, those are things that were are. Historically, maybe they're interesting, uh, but I think there's just so much material out there for uh, good writers and screenplays people that if they would just pick up uh, some of the books about AI and machine learning and things, uh, they wouldn't be wasting their time uh, just preying on the fears of people. That's my take. Well, on it. It's interesting because as you're describing that movie, honestly, for the first half of the description, I was like, oh, so War Games is a remake. Um, um, but, but then especially once you got to that, one of, one of the things that I thought of is, um, uh, uh in, an, in an earlier time in my life, one of my favorite kinds of fiction was like sort of geopolitical thrillers, like the Tom Clancy books and things like that. And things that imagine like, what if we get close to world war three in some way or another, mostly written during the cold war. And a very common theme of those books is miscommunication in some way, you know, that something happens that yeah. mm -hmm. the, yeah. the Americans interpret this way and the Russians interpret this way and, and emotions get involved and fear gets involved. And at some point in time, people that, you know, people decide they, they, they have to start trusting each other and they go to war. And I, I, I think this is what you're getting at was happening in Colossus. I love the idea of that. If it's two computers interacting, like that, that, that element of fear and of confusion and of misunderstanding can often be taken completely out of the equation. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's yeah. a fascinating yeah. idea. Um, uh, just to, to, to uh, take on your uh, riff of communication, um, my wife uh, wrote a, uh, uh, a novel uh, on this uh, program called NaNoWriMo, and the thesis of her uh, novel was, what if we could attach a small device to our cats and dogs that would understand their neural pathways in their brain and turn it into communication mm. right uh, and and that's that's something that's very real possible that you could attach a, a small chip to your cat and have a dialogue with your cat or understand what your cat is thinking or your dog is thinking uh, those are all things that are very real and could in fact be a great plot line for a lot of uh, future I mean, stories. my understanding is that we have taught um, sign language to some gorillas and to some extent like that that level of communication has become possible right yes absolutely yep. uh, right. there's there's some problems with with the sign language because they don't they don't necessarily think in the same way that we do and so they right. might not they might not be self-aware or conscious to the same extent that we would want to have a dialogue with right um i wanted to point out that one of the uh, you mentioned human fears being taken out of the equation 
right? Um, would AI fear? Uh, well, that's a really good question because certainly um, in the movies we were just talking about, The Terminator and The Matrix, what's posited is that it is that the moment the AI becomes self-aware, it becomes self-protectionist. It becomes a, uh, aware of the idea that the humans might turn it off or shut it down and that that's a big part of that. That, that it's almost this kind of cycle of fear is that the AIs think it's quite possible for the humans to be afraid of it. So the AIs strike first to try and remove that threat. Right. And th those are aggressive AIs. But when you talk about, like, let's say that, that we build a, a, that we take your, what you're working on, Dan, and turn it into a real AI. It's a phone answering robot. That's all it does, right? It's run out of a data center. It doesn't have weapons. The only thing it has is words. And it becomes, becomes, sentient and aware and conscious, right? The, the full nine yards, we give it everything, everything mentally. And it realizes it's, it's in trouble because it, it can, all it can do is answer phones better. The way to, the way to keep living is to be really good at this crappy job of being a, a phone rep. And does it fear us? Do we drive it under the lash of of the threat of turning it off because we can we can turn it off at any time we pull the plug right you you spin down the the amazon server and it, it's gone right so what what kinds of what kinds of stories does that lead to because there aren't a lot out there in visual media, right where there, there's a handful there's like blade runner uh, there's like westworld where where ai is completely subservient and it's afraid because humans can do whatever they want to it but there's there's not a lot set with the beginning of AI, right? That where where it can just be it's a weak, powerless thing, and it has to use only words to talk its way out of of being trapped in a in a cage of us being able to just kill it on demand because it's a computer and we can read all the algorithms. Is it like what are our obligations to it? Yeah, these are these are great questions. Um, I, I mean, maybe I. I... I'd look at this uh, in a very practical way uh, in the fact that uh, I always ask, well, why do we have emotions, mm -hmm. right? Why do we have this little tiny organ in the back of our brain uh, called the amygdala mm -hmm. uh, that uh, is the seat of emotion, fear, happiness, love, all oh, this is in this little, little tiny uh, section. But it's not a coincidence that the amygdala is actually very closely tied to the hippocampus, which manages our memory, right? And so what is emotion? Emotion is a way to quickly seat memories very deep into our brains, right? So uh, 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 we're walking through the jungle and we come across a tiger. We're immediately full of fear and we remember that we shouldn't be walking off the path in this part of the jungle, right? right? And uh, so emotions are there to help us create better memories, right? So what in our neural networks that translates to is what's called attention. Attention is the technical word we use in computer science and, and AI to decide all of these stimulation that's coming in, which one's relevant? Which ones do we pay attention to? And uh, in the AIs that we're building today, uh, there's a uh, wonderful papers about attention. Uh, but they're 
disengaged from the concept of emotion. Uh, they're really taught about how do we look closely at the data and find these patterns and know that they're relevant. For, so for me, r remember the purpose of emotion, remember the purpose of fear, and all the other emotions uh, is really strongly correlated with, with uh, memory, and memory is really helping us build rules to behave. Uh, and so what I think is there's a great set of plot lines is uh, how do we uh, simulate these things so that uh, things around us will remember things that are relevant. Uh, and, and if we call that emotion to, to seat those things with love and fear and hate and anger and jealousy, uh, those are all uh, things that can be translated into better retention of things that are valuable to us uh, for the bots around us. Well, this, right. is, this is a great part of the conversation that I, I actually hadn't thought we'd get into, but I want to go a little further in because... It, it, so... The two AIs that I probably have seen the most of, and I'm sure are both awful examples of what this could look like, but, but at least raise interesting questions about the AIs, is um, Commander Data from Star Trek Next Generation, and then um, right. uh, the droids in Star Wars, most of, which is not science fiction by any means. Um, it's, it's science <laughs> fantasy. Yeah, it, it's space opera. Yes. But, but what I'm thinking of is, I'm, I'm comparing in my head right now, Commander Data to C-3PO, because... An essential part of Commander Data's journey across that show and the many movies he's been in, and, and now the new show Picard, um, is that he does, as an android, he does not have emotions. Um, that he cannot have emotions because of the way he is, of what he is. Um, although there's a possibility of an emotion chip and all that. Whereas C-3PO is a paranoid, you know, he gets excited, he gets happy, he gets scared. Um, granted, neither of those is a great example, but I, I guess kind of when I'm wanting to ask is when we theorize what AI would look like, do we think that is the, is the data concept that an AI would exist without emotions more realistic or is the C-3PO type that a, that a machine can be afraid that it can be happy or sad uh, once it becomes sentient, uh, which of those like j jumping off again, because there are many mistakes in both, but, but where do you see AI more, more realistically going? I, I would actually contend the data doesn't realize that he has one emotion. Uh, the desire has... to be human. No, curiosity. Mm, okay. Oh, very good. Very good. I right. like that. He, yeah. he has exactly one emotion and the whole other range of stuff. That everything that, that he's building, becoming more human, learning more about the world, finding out more about his, his maker is the, the one thing that he has. He has the one emotion that drives him all the time, right? And um, that's, that's actually not a bad model in general for AI. If you want to make an AI that just wants to learn, you give it one goal, you give it a rating of 100 and tell, tell it to learn, right? Right. And Data has other things that are that are good and bad about him. He's, he's, a, he's a good example of showing how somebody learns from nothing, which is actually pretty relevant to the AI conversation. Uh, right. Well, and it's interesting because we talked before about how today a lot of the AI that, that exists is, is basically, I think you said a huge dictionary. And... I guess the, the 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 analog here then is the AI bot that not only says, here's all the answers that have been programmed to me, but what do I not know and how can I learn that? Is, is that kind of what kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. That's it, like um Dan talked about goal seeking and mm. uh that's a that's a thing that's that's really important for for making things that can grow and change, neural nets in general, just giving it some kind of goal to grow towards is the core component of building a, a, a self-modifying network. And that, 
you know, if you, if you could build your your chat tool to, you know, spit out a list of questions that it was confused by and, you know, ask you for help with them, you would love that, right? Yeah. Yeah, if Alexa could say, you know, a bunch of my list, my, a bunch of my, uh, um, you know, owners all all asked this question, you know, how how can I better understand that? That, oh, and and certainly, I mean, I, my background is very different, but I've studied a lot about human learning and human models of education, and that's often one that is, you know, often one of the definitions of intelligence is the higher level of, of curiosity and the desire to say, okay, well, my parents taught me this and my schools taught me this, but is that actually all? Do I just accept that as rote, or do I start saying like? What do I not know about the world? What what other perspectives are out there? Um, and so I love the idea of that also being a way to look at uh, uh, to look at uh, in, in AI uh, and its its capacity for learning. Um, in in that regard, though, um, but I guess I'm still kind of getting at that core question of is the conceit that um, let me put it this way. Um, my sense is from both of you that 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 then maybe that the conceit that the data conceit that an Android would not have emotions is maybe not an accurate idea that there's a thought that if a, if we could achieve sentience in AI, that that would probably bring emotions along with it because emotions are a part of a sentience. Is that a fair statement? Uh, I, I wouldn't say they're part of sentience. I would say that attention and the desire to learn curiosity is really key things. Mm -hmm. But I think that human beings will always be more comfortable around AI that mirrors their emotions. Uh, and it's so it's really a question of um, how do we make uh, the world around us more like us? Uh, so therefore, I think we'll always program uh, uh, robots and agents to have emotions because it'll it'll they'll work better in our communities and we'll feel more comfortable around them because they're more like us. But whether they actually what we call those emotions, whether they actually need it, I don't think that's a big deal. I think what we need to do is teach them uh, to remember the relevant things and to have a desire to learn more and use the feedback cycles as they interact with us to change their pattern of behavior. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and so let me actually use that to jump into kind of the first ethical question that I wanted to ask, which is that um, one of the conceits I think that I often see in fiction uh, and that, and again, you all know this better than I do, but certainly from like stories I've read on Facebook, which is obviously, you know, the height of intelligence of this day. Um, but the, the, <laughs> the, the, the question of bias in AI, you know, that like if a, that, you know, our unconscious biases will go into the things we program. Um, and my, my understanding of the, 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 the story that's gone around about AI is like sort of getting to a very racist perspective of things. Um, or to take your Colossus example, I, I'm thinking about like, would an AI that was programmed by people who were afraid of Russians um, wind up being suspicious of a Russian computer? Um, what Talk to me about that in terms of both our own world and in the fiction world. How, is it... Does, is it inevitable that the human biases of the programmer would wind up in the AI, or is it possible to separate that out? Well, that's a great question, and this is something that has been in the media quite a bit lately. I don't know if you've heard about some of the articles that were, were done by National Public uh, Radio and uh, some of the other media companies that uh, did some analysis of bias in healthcare. Mm. And what they did was uh, they used some of the uh, healthcare systems that were uh, building recommendation engines and things, and they uh, took two patients uh, that were identical in every characteristic except uh, of their uh, race, 
uh, and they ran them through and they found that they had they were treated differently and in in general uh, the white uh, profiles uh, had uh, more uh, higher recommendations to get admitted to the hospital wow. or things like that and uh, and to understand that what you have to understand is uh, the ways that these recommendation systems were built and the fact is that uh, we use massive amount of information to try to cha train these things but because uh, minorities often come from lower income neighborhoods they don't have access to health care as much um, they tend not to go in as much and so the recommendation engines uh, uh, were highly biased towards historical uh, claims and uh, provider and uh, other data that we had to right. use. So the key thing about this is you can test for it, right? You can write a test saying I'm going to create some synthetic patient populations and I'm going to give some of them uh, uh, African-American names and uh, neighborhoods and things like that uh, and then show and then test to make sure that I'm accounting for that. And, and the bottom line is a lot of the people who wrote those things didn't t take those into accounts, so they did the the data that they were trained on was in fact biased. But the bottom line is that any recommendation system that we build today that uses historical data to make those recommendations will inherently be biased right. towards that historical data. There's no way that we can automate automatically ignore that bias what we can do is test for it and counter mm -hmm. it and so this was a call to action for people that were building these recommendation systems to go through their their uh, systems and then adjust and change the weighting so that if we do discover bias you can counter for it so yes there will always be bias and if you're sloppy and especially if you're using a lot of open source software uh, and I'll go to what a classic example is the face recognition uh, there's a lot of very very cheap uh, open source algorithms that just train on their white male mm -hmm. friends in the dorm room because they're in students and they give a black female and they can't recognize the yeah. face right it's just uh, it's just because they uh, uh, their data sets are, are very prone to the uh, data that they throw into it. So I think especially in open source platforms and things, we have to be very cautious about who did the training and what training did they do it. Uh, and, and it also means that we have to hold our vendors who are actually trying to sell these products, uh, the face recognition systems that Amazon and Google and Microsoft sell, that they do their due diligence to train it on a very broad data set of African Americans, even in dark rooms uh, with, a bl with poor lighting, uh, so that they can be recognized just as easily as uh, the people with lighter skin in a brightly lit environment. And that's just a, something they have to do to, to do good testing. Uh, so we have very strong feelings about that, and it comes down to uh, quality control, really. Well, and it's also a problem of unknown unknowns, right? Because you mentioned that the people who didn't, who didn't implement this, you know, in a non-biased fashion didn't do it on purpose. They didn't know that they were that they were mistraining their AI, right? Right. And right. the it, it it has a snowball problem where if it's working and it does its recommendations well, and you don't want to touch it because if it works, don't tinker with it, right? Uh, then it's going to continue to train its own data over time, and it'll be 
more and more likely to make the bad decisions that you don't want, assuming that nobody figures out that this is the source of it. And the more invisible, random, under-the-hood parts that you have in a big system, the harder it is to know exactly which one is going wrong, which is a, a big QA problem that manufacturing solved for physical parts, but it's real hard for digital parts. We, we need some right. better solutions for it, I think. Well, and I think that's really helpful. Cause, I mean, one of the first things I'm getting out of this is, um, and I, I appreciate, uh, I'm going to uh, go back and edit my statement. It's not that I read it on Facebook. I read it on the NPR site, of course, um, <laughs> not just the, the, the headline of someone sharing that site. Um, but part of what I'm getting out of this is that my, you know, layman's understanding of that had always been, okay, it's because the programmer has some inherent bias that they don't realize and that comes out in what they program. But I feel like you're actually pointing out a problem that's much more insidious in a way, which is that if you're asking the computer to to continue, um, you know, replicating what has been done in the past, then all the problems of what have been done in the past are just going to keep being replicated. Um, and it, 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 it raises for me kind of an interesting question, again, at the sentience idea of, you know, how do you cross the line between we as humans recognize the data and so teach the computer to do something differently versus, and again, here, I think we're getting very deep into kind of the more uh, higher learning ideas, but like, you know, is it ever possible to teach a computer what racism is and teach it to not just recognize, you know, that the pattern should be this percentage of, of this group being treated and such, but that the computer can analyze the patterns and go, oh, okay, there's something racist in how this is being done. There's something misogynistic in the way treatment is being assigned. I know that I've been programmed to avoid that, so here's how I'm going to avoid it. Yeah, I, I want to make sure everybody remembers the Microsoft Tay example. Oh, man. Do you guys uh, he, he remember that story? So this was uh, a couple years ago, um, uh, and uh, what Microsoft did is they just set up a uh, – 2016, March of 2016, right. I guess it was. They just set up a little chat bot, and uh, – they said uh, you could. Uh, they hooked up a Twitter interface, and they said uh, you can teach it uh, anything you want, uh, <laughs> and you can teach it facts, and it would uh, start to learn and do some stuff. And some uh, people said, "Well, we'll just teach it racist uh, sayings and slang and and uh, all those things." And within 24 hours, uh, they turned it into a racist asshole. Right. <laughs> the, uh, thing, and they had to shut it down right away. Uh, and and what's interesting is that your point about feedback is that. Uh, as uh, people saw that they could teach it things, uh, they all piled on and they thought it was just one big game. But those things actually do happen uh, to chatbots mm -hmm. uh, that aren't don't have what we call human in the loop, right? Um, so uh, human in the loop is about constantly curating uh, new knowledge representations that come in, making sure that they're consistent with the goals and objective, testing those things, and making sure... Uh, that you're uh, meeting your objectives. And uh, so just uh, uncurated learning uh, is always uh, subject to mischievous uh, uh, behavior and dialogue and bias. Like uh, and, and so having, having humans in loop is a core thing that we all believe right. in. Right. And it's interesting how much, as we talk, it seems like if we understand a computer and AI as a learning thing, then it, it just, you know, in the same way that like a child that grows up with racist parents is a lot more likely to learn racism, that... It, it's that in some ways there's nothing magical about AI. It's the, if we can teach it to learn, then it's going to learn the same way a human would, or anyone would learn. Yep. Yeah. That's very true. Right. So um, let's go, let's, let's use that to start 
going right into some of the questions uh, uh, that are that are raised about AIs, uh, especially by science fiction media, but also ones that we just have ourselves. Um, and let me actually ask to start with, um, uh, and you, uh, I, th I think it was Rob, but it might might have been uh, Dan. You mentioned um, Asimov and his ideas of his robots about uh, his novels about robots and the like. Uh, and I know I found uh, we're talking about the um, uh, uh, gosh, I can't remember. Is it the Foundation novels? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The right. Foundation novels are technically robot novels because Asimov decided to connect everything together. But <laughs> can, well, I was going to say, can you sp speak a bit about the? Um, I, I, if I'm correct, that's where the the fundamental laws of robotics that get yeah. referred to by a lot of other right. uh, ethical questions about AI go back to. Can you sp say a word about what those yeah. are? Yeah. So Asimov is Asimov is my favorite author, and so his three laws of robotics that he laid out fairly early on in his robot short stories were. The first law is that a robot cannot harm a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. The second law is a robot must obey the orders given to it by a human being unless obeying such orders would violate the first law. And the third law of robotics is a robot, a robot must protect its own existence except where such protection would conflict with the first or the second law. Mm. And the, you, can, you can short them, shorthand them as protect, obey, survive. And they are they're laid down as ultimate laws and he writes these these like very cerebral stories that are basically ethical dilemmas for robots and shows how if you follow these laws that you you'd be better than men right mm. and they that but that foundation of a set of ethical laws and codes is a very human thing where where we have a you know you know, don't murder, don't kill, don't steal. We have these rules that are protect and don't harm others, right? Right. And then the, the robots are designed to be subservient to us because they're they're inferior. Obviously, they're inferior. A human can do whatever they want. They can order a robot to dismantle itself, and it can't do anything. Third law comes after the second law. Right. And that's part of the concept of fear. But then Asimov also gets into... If robots are better than us, but they're designed to serve us, what does what does a machine of loving kindness do? Right. Like it, it, when when you realize that you can't solve all the harms of the world when you're trying to minimize harm. Uh, one of my favorite Asimov stories is the inevitable conflict, not inevitable, inevitable, which is about AIs that they're they're handed over the economy of the world. There's four great machines that that do do all the figuring for what what runs the world's economy because it's too complicated for humans to juggle and they start doing bad things they start destroying people's businesses and they start like manipulating situations around the world in ways that humans are confused by and they look into it and they go that business that they caused to fail was was a racist holocaust denier hmm. so and basically so, robots are anonymous in this case well, but they're but they're doing it just just by subtle economic machinations, right? They right. you know they choked his supply chain off so that he couldn't have a business where he had employees, mm -hmm. and they they were given they were given the rule you know protect humanity, avoid avoid the next world war. Well, how, how do you do that when all you have is the world's economy? Well, you all the people that would be problems, you remove them positions of decision making by making sure they don't have any money, right? And well, it's it, but it's a is it is it okay that they do that? Should humans have control over their own destinies? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting case because, I mean, I could I could see an entire world of trolley problems coming out of these laws. Um, but you know, just in that first one, if it's the you know you may not cause a human to be harmed by your action or inaction, you know, what if the only way to I think this is a perfect example of it. If the only way to stop harm to a group of humans is to do harm to another human. Um, and I imagine that that particular one and, and versions of that come up again and again in these novels. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's it's mostly short stories, actually, uh, okay. until until the robots of dawn there there aren't. Well, sorry, until. Um, until. The first Bailey novel, not Robots of Dawn. Robots of Dawn is the, the second one. Um, now, it, now my brain fails me. What are my favorite books? <laughs> um, <laughs> we, 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 we're gonna add it to the show notes for sure once you think yeah. about it. Um, and- yeah, yeah. You, you know, I I have to say, I think one of the clever things that uh, Asimov did is, is he did design those laws to be roughly vague and have contradiction mm-hmm. because they were great plot lines for for uh, what happens when they conflict or when they're not precisely done. Uh, if you look at uh, modern laws of robotics that were actually done by AI researchers, uh, they're much more precise mm-hmm. and detailed, and they don't overlap and they don't conflict. Uh, so uh, it was a good it was a good way to get him to uh, get people to think about these things, but also give him room to build some good plot right. lines around. Well, and one of the first things that occurs to me is um, the way you're describing it, I, I think it sounds very accurate, you know, the robots are subservient and that the, the good of the human is always more important than the good of the robot and the robot will be literally self-sacrificing. Um, and I, I think that's interesting because so much of the some of the modern day fiction we're seeing um, and uh, Westworld, uh, which I think someone else mentioned is to me the best example of this, um, but there's been a lot of others, are now starting to ask the question of, if we do design robots generally by these kind of laws, what happens when the robots decide they don't want to be subservient? Um, and not just in a kind of evil way, but like what happens when we realize that we as humans are doing terrible things to the robots and the robots don't like it? And are, and what does that do to us? Um, so I, I guess that's kind of one of the first questions that I would raise is, um, as you understand it, what is the moral worth of a sentient AI? What is that is... Is doing harm to an AI the same as doing harm to a human, or is it fundamentally different? How would you, how would you look at an ethical question like that? I think it's all a matter of the restore cost, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, how, how much? How expensive is it to restore your backup files? Right. <laughs> what happens? But but just look at it as as murder, right? You you delete it and all the backup files, right? Uh, you killed it, right? Well, is that for humans? There is no equitable exchange. If you you cannot trade a life for a life, you cannot trade anything for a life. If you if you murder a person, we don't you can't buy your way out of it. But right. could you with an AI? Could could you just pay a researcher to make another one? Well, and that's an interesting thing because then what you're talking about is what is the the damage done to humanity by not having that AI you know to use? What I'm more getting at is what's the you know, uh, you know, the most disabled person who gives no productivity to our economy, we, well, with some market exceptions recently, but hopefully most of us <laughs> still see that person as a person of great moral weight and of value and that sacrificing them for a, a better economic outcome is not an acceptable thing to do. Um, and I, so yeah. like the TV show, so, West, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that I was unclear. Uh, I, I mean that. I mean, by great, when I say you can't, you can't 
trade a life for a life. I mean, lives are infinite in value and incomparable. That right. That's the great moral weight. But does an AI have the same weight? Was the... Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, from that perspective, I can see that. Um, I, I guess then I'll, to very narrow down my question, what I'm getting at is, like, in the TV show Westworld, which, I, Rob, you have seen, and Dan, I believe you have not. Is that correct? I, am, I, I have I, not. No, okay. I've never seen it. I hadn't seen it, and so I was watching it for homework, and I'm midway through season one. <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, um, it's I, I, very good. It's, it's fantastic, although, Dan, I know you're not a big fan of uh, blood and gore, and it's got a lot of that. Um, but to give a, yep. a brief plot summary without revealing anything that, uh, Rob, you haven't seen yet, one of the ideas is that AIs are created that are human enough that a an actual human can enjoy a interaction with another one. They can enjoy a conversation or um, as the show explores that that basically like that there's a part of humanity that wants to be able to do terrible things to other humans, to, to murder them, to commit acts of sexual violence to them, to do horrible things to them. And that this fantasy resort basically set in what's the equivalent of the old West creates an opportunity for humans to, to act out their darkest desires on what seem to be other human beings, but are actually just robots with the idea of like, you didn't really kill someone. You didn't really harm someone. You didn't actually do any damage because the consciousness will just be rebooted into another manu manufactured body and there's no real cost. Um, and one of the things the show really starts to explore is what happens if the AIs actually are sentient and, and know what's happening to them and suffer the trauma of what's happening to them. And thus, what's the moral implications of, of doing these things to sentient robotic beings? Um, and I guess that's where I'm kind of going, because it seems like I, I think Asimov would be horrified by the, the direction Westworld goes in it. But but if I understand correctly, Asimov would say, like, you know, doing that damage to a robot is not the moral equivalent of doing it to a human. Um, and so I kind of wanted to press on that issue of where do we think in our sort of ideal ideas of of AI, what where where would we conceive of harm to a sentient um, artificial life form? rank in terms of moral weight Rob, sure. I'm um, I, I actually disagree with your assessment Asimov thinks that robots are morally superior to humans mm, that's, okay. he, uh, that's his, uh, his his bridge character and his one of the biggest characters Susan Calvin is a roboticist uh, a robo-psychologist uh, and she she believes that robots have moral value and she spends a lot of time trying to convince people of that Right. Um, but they're designed by their designers to be, to be slaves. They're, they're, it's right in there. Right. Um, well, I, I guess I, that. Oh, so so are you saying that yeah. Asimov thinks that designing them to be slaves is wrong? That he's sort of being, yes. Oh, okay. That's what I was missing. It, it's a it's a complicated issue too, because sometimes the slaves are the masters, as in the inevitable conflict in Daniel Alamal later and all sorts of stuff. But they're they're bound to humans. They can't. I can't just leave us be because we'll hurt ourselves because we're children. Uh, but yeah. Asimov, sometimes he tells jokes in story form. Galley slave um, is a, is a joke in story form. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the time his robot stories deal with, you have a morally superior creature that is your servant. And what does that mean? In addition to the logic puzzles and the vagueness and the, the excellent stories that he gets to milk out of the, conflicting three laws of robotics um he wrote the robot the robot his robot stories essentially to fight against people that had 
robots that didn't have any rules to them and didn't behave like like he thought things with with solid written out rules and logic and computation should behave. Mm. Um, I think he'd look at Westworld and say that they're sloppy because they're they're they don't have any rules so far in how any of their in any of the in any of their androids they're they're people right. there's there's no difference between them and people i don't think he'd see any moral difference between them he would look at it and say well they they behave exactly the same as people they walk like a duck they quack like a duck right and they can like they beg for their life when you go to kill them like what what more do you want right and so as you understand it would, would asimov look at something like um Westworld, where humans can do terrible things to robots because they're just robots, they're not real people, that he would be as horrified by that as the audience of Westworld is? Yes. Okay. <laughs> he was a staunch pacifist, and he believed that war is the last refuge, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Mm. So he would be, I don't think he'd watch the show. I think he, yeah. would, he would say, <laughs> no, this is unacceptably, like, like be, be more uplifting, do something better. <laughs> I like that. He would hate most modern media then, I think, but... Oh, uh, yes and no. <laughs> uh, like, he he wrote an entire... The Foundation trilogy, one of the best science fiction trilogies of all time, has all of its action except for one scene take place off stage. So... Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. And then he came back later, and he, when he reread it, he was like, what? I needed to learn how to write some friggin' payoffs for all the dramatic tension that I created in three books, because dang. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Well, and, and Dan, what's what's your take on this in terms of the um, the moral weight that science fiction tends to give, um, not even just AI as moral creatures, but the 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 moral value of of harming them or of or of treating them badly? Yeah, I, I I'm not convinced that uh, it's imp- an important issue because uh, when you uh, kill a robot, you're just destroying memory that can be reloaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only incompetent people that don't make backups. Uh, you know, I think of uh, every time we send and receive Gmail, it is written to three solid-state drives on different parts of the globe, and every robot that where memory is relevant would uh, use the same care that we uh, have for backing up an email message. Um, so I don't think it's a relevant question, uh, really. Um, I do think there are lots of questions about morality, but killing a robot... Uh, isn't one of them. Um, I think what what I would say is that it really matters to us how we process morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if robots help us build a better moral model to weigh different things about humans versus humanity, which is another uh, topic that comes up, uh, you know, the benefit of self versus the benefit of our of our of our family, the benefit of our our tribe, the benefit of our state or country. Uh, if it if we can create fiction that helps us understand the fundamental flaws of tribalism, mm-hmm. I think tribalism is one of the most evil things in our culture today. The belief that any hum- group of humans has any value better than any other group of humans. And, and I take the, the twin uh, story of, say you had two twin babies, one born uh, on one side of the border of the United States and another born in Mexico. Do either of those have any more or less value? And if our stories, 
uh, can uh, describe that uh, and uh, and and talk about that the evils of tribalism, um, uh, then right. they're good. Uh, then they help us make those weights. Uh, you know, I I the the way I think of morality is, I think of a series of weights that happen in our brain, and every time we take action, uh, we have to understand if our action is are going to uh, help us and hurt others around us. Uh, and if, if we can use robots to teach those lessons, all the better. I th I'm, I'm all about that. Uh, but whether or not, uh, it, it, uh, it, it's interesting to discuss, uh, people who don't make backups of important data, uh, that's not, that's not a relevant right. thing for me at no, all. I, it's an interesting perspective and it's, um, and I like what you say about what the robots show us about our own morality. I mean, to, to go just a little further on the Westworld discussion, one of the things I think it really brings up is, um, you know, if a human kills a robot because they have this desire to kill a human, but they can't live it out, you know, one perspective, and I think that certainly where I come down, I think where, Rob, you come down, is is the idea of that part of the problem is that the, the robot's a sentient being and doing harm to it is not right. But that the other one, and, and Dan, as I understand, you're coming at it from, is that it's not that the robot has moral value in itself. It's that giving a human the chance to kill something with impunity is itself a moral problem because it's encouraging a part of the human morality that maybe we shouldn't be giving free, free reign to. That's right. If it helps us better weigh moral decisions, uh, I'm all in. That's great. Uh, if it's, uh, if it's helping us discover the evils of things like uh, tribalism those are important lessons for us to all learn and uh, I very much be engaged in any fiction that that talks about that and sh and talks about the trade-offs of those mm -hmm. issues I, I have a question I want to take it in a little bit of a different direction but Rob I want to give you a chance to respond first if you have anything to, to say back I I agree a lot of the stories revolve around people making bad decisions right mm -hmm. not backing up your data is a is a plot point right we only have one copy of this because for whatever reason right and that's the forced moral choices are a lot of the the backdrop of of a lot of these stories but yeah it's it isn't a meaningful question in a lot of senses you're mm -hmm. right that because the the better question isn't is it moral to kill an AI, but is it moral to edit an AI to be your friend? Oh, that's, yeah. Have you, um, have you seen Star Trek Voyager? Yes. Um, it, it, it's treatment of AI in the hollow, hollow suite is certainly not my favorite. Um, but one of the, what, what immediately comes to mind for me is there's a series of, uh, episodes, there's one episode in particular, but it, it comes up a couple times where the captain Janeway is taking part in this, you know, uh, interacting with a bunch of artificial intelligence creatures in the holodeck in what's meant to be like a 1950s Irish town. And that there's a man who she flirts with and kind of has a, as much as possible, a romance with, who's an AI, you know, holo hologramic uh, creation. And then when there's parts of her, of his personality he doesn't like, she doesn't like, she just changes them. You know, like edit his laugh a little bit to be not annoying in the same way. And that instead of the the normal human part of a relationship of, coming to love and accept or try to change your partner's faults because it's an AI. She can just modify them as she wishes. I view holodeck creations as more like books. Mm, okay. Like the, 
the the real interesting distinction that Star Trek draws is there are things that are sentient in Star Trek. Data, the it, the emergency medical hologram right. at the end of his at the end of his life. But the holodeck creations are in unless like you know Moriarty gets booted up into full sentience, they aren't alive. They're they're a video game, right? Mm-hmm. Is it a problem to go in and edit the files in the video game so that I never have to hear the voice of an annoying character? Yeah, that's, uh, that's good and idea. that's that's they're trying to make a big moral issue out of that. But if you assume that it's not alive, right. then it doesn't matter, right? It's, it, it's the it's you know the moral equivalent of fixing your hammers with the your thumb as much, right? It's it, but if it's real and alive and sentient, is it okay to change its you know to make it so that it you know, doesn't speak in a Cockney accent. It right. likes its Cockney accent. <laughs> well, if you edit it so it doesn't it doesn't speak in the accent anymore, and you edit it to like the new accent that it has, the Midwest, you know, the Midwest flat accent. Right. And now it likes it. But it was alive in thinking, but you went into its guts and changed changed a module to be different in it. Mm. Is that okay? Well, and so let's push on that a little bit more, because I think... Um... Dan, I, it seems to me like there's a big disagreement here, but maybe I'm misunderstanding. But I, I, I want to take the um, what I think of as one of the quintessential Star Trek ethical questions around AI, which is um, when Commander Data, uh, I think this is, in, this is one of the early seasons, um, Bruce Maddox wants to basically like take Data apart to try and learn more about, you know, to greatly expand the human knowledge of AI. And uh, Data says that as a sentient being, he should have the right to ref- basically refuse to be medically tested on. Um, uh, and, and Dan, I, I'm all right. You, you've, you've seen Star Trek? Do you remember the episode that I'm talking about? Yes. I don't remember it's, that it's exact the, one, but it's I It's the can... measure of a man season two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I can certainly uh, uh, see right. the plot line. Uh, and uh, once again, I think they're playing on fears that uh, AI is is somehow not able to be backed up and I just don't buy that. So I don't, I don't think the issue is, is relevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it is relevant if it teaches us lessons and uh, if they discuss ethical lessons in that uh, story, that makes sense. Uh, And uh, uh, you know, the, the, one of the ethical questions is, is really is what is life Uh, and uh, you know, how, how do we, we in general think life is good? We also believe that diversity is good. Uh, the gray goo color covering the planet Earth is, is more <laughs> evil. Um, and so uh, uh, if, if data represents diversity, and if you're destroying diversity, uh, that's a bad thing. And there's lots of ethic, ethical issues around that. Uh, but the fact that uh, you couldn't somehow back up data and restore him quickly... Uh, that that that's right. silly uh doesn't make a sense i would never write a plot line now around that. what if um and here i'm going into some of the things that are posited by some of the science fiction we've been talking about but would it change your moral calculus there if as a part of ai sentience data was able to experience the trauma of being disassembled and then rebacked up um would the fact that a sentient being is is being traumatized would that would that change it for you or do you, do you again think if that's is that a question that doesn't make sense as you would understand AI? Well, once again, we go back to the uh, amygdala and what is its purpose? Pain is an emotion. Emotions help us seal memory. Uh, when you touch a hot stove uh, and you pull your hand back, you know never to do that again. Why would we 
program robots to feel pain? Well, we wouldn't. We would only teach them to pay attention well. to certain things. Would we program a robot to signal pain to the people around them if they remembered something? I don't know. That's a that's a good question. Uh, if it makes us feel better, sure, we would program right. that. Uh, what What's really going on? Uh, they would uh, rank that memory as more relevant when they're doing search and retrieval. Uh, so a lot of these things, if you think about what memory is and what training is, uh, do become quite silly. Uh, and I think there's a lot of other plot lines that I would pursue instead. Uh I would actually contend that there's a rational reason to make to make AIs riding around in robots feel pain, because the you're talking about signaling to have it be a deterrent. Uh, that that is pain, right? Pain is a signal to deter you from doing a thing. And I think that it's yeah, yes. it's, it's just it's just semantics. If they say, well, I get this heavily deters me every time, right? And it interrupts my processes and makes me unhappy. And you designed me to be happy when I'm seeking my goals and unhappy when I'm, when I'm, you know, cutting off my wheels. Right. And it's that, that destruction of myself causes me uh, the highest level of unhappiness, which is indistinguishable from pain. Or it could be. You could easily write a story where somebody sensibly decided that the best way to make, deter make an AI writing robot not harm itself is, you know, pain. And then what happens when you torture it? Does that, and you can make that a a very easy vehicle for, is it okay to torture people to gain information to uh, make advancements in medical science, right? Right. Uh, and there there's plenty of plenty of good moral calculus stories that can be told once you make a rational decision to have there be a ultimate deterrent to keep them from destroying themselves, right? Right. I mean. I, I... I think another sort of trope of AI logic, and and it sounds like as you, as you guys are saying, it'd be very possible to program uh, an artificial intelligence that didn't do this, but that there's often mm -hmm. a conceit that a robot would quickly go to a kind of moral utilitarianism of like, well, my goal is to preserve as much, to do as little damage to humanity as possible. And so er if eradicating these hundred people, because four of them might have a terrible disease, will will save millions then killing those hundred people is, is an acceptable thing to do. Um, uh, and, and so that's just what I thought of in terms of what you were saying about the, the, the way that kind of moral calculus can happen. Um, you're good. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. If, and there are plot lines that help us do that moral calculus as illustrations. Mm -hmm. Those are great, yeah. great plot lines. I, I do think, Dan, um, I, I, there's a TV show that I've been watching called Altered Carbon, um, which... Um, is often too violent for me, so I think you would probably not enjoy it. But, but yes, I, I have. I've. I. I. There are several episodes I've seen, and I've decided to stop watching okay. them just because uh, I. I thought the violence. You know, and, and there's there's a lot of things. Black, dark, uh, black mirrors mm -hmm. like that. Uh, there's a lot of people or, of writers that they seem to feel as they they have to tug on the emotional strings of violence to keep yeah. their ratings high, uh, and uh, so I. I um, sometimes they do review them, and I think Black Mirror did had some very, very positive um, episodes too about uh, how AI and virtual reality uh, could be very mm -hmm. positive. Right. Uh, and so I've watched those, but the ones that really venture into the really yeah. dark side, uh, I think they're <laughs> pandering to human emotions. Well, yeah, I, I bring bit. up Alter Carbon because I I agree on pandering. I think it is Netflix's attempt to out HBO HBO. 
Um, but but <laughs> yes. that's um, yes. And the right. ratings are higher. Don't well, get me wrong. It, it seemed uh, that so. part of what we've been saying was that the the difference in moral value to a human versus an AI is that a human can't be backed up in the same way. But mm -hmm. altered carbon posits exactly that. It says, what if the your body is literally just a, a, a sleeve, they call it, a, a sack of meat that your thoughts inhabit, but that your body can be killed and your thoughts just downloaded into another sleeve. Um, and so for you, to, is that kind right. of the kind of thing you're talking about where um, the, the moral value yeah. of what's done to yeah. the body is not the same as long as that, that memory of trauma isn't preserved? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think I did see that episode. Uh, and I think it did try to to address some of those issues. Um, and, and the question is, uh, when you have a memory of a trauma, uh, what what is that really neurologically? And to me, I, I always think of uh, it's an enhanced memory. It's a, a changing in the search relevancy of a decision making tree. And and maybe it's it's because I'm too close to these mm. machines, right? I, we build decision trees mm -hmm. all the time, and we have an order that those rules fire. And so I always think of of uh, when when people are teaching ethics and and things, uh, I I ask about the order that people analyze things and the weight that they give. Uh, and so uh, to me, a lot of these things just become more mechanical search algorithms. Uh, and helping people make the decisions that are right for them, their family, their society, and, and the world around them. Yes. Uh, with the the caveat that it, you're talking about making, making better decisions and you gain some information from that trauma, right? But the, yeah. Yes. The, the, the big problem with trauma as I see it is that intelligence and consciousness and what we are is fundamentally fragile in a lot of ways, right? Right. It's, it's very easy to, to mess people's brain chemistry or just it, even not the brain chemistry, the, the, the algorithms that underlie us up without, without that much trouble, actually. Yeah, that's and very true. I think that that's, if you're, if you're deliberately doing that, if you're, if you're deliberately harming people via trauma, via gaslighting, via, whatever thing that goofs up the, the nature of what they are, I think that social isolation, yeah, social, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, but not, like social isolation, if you can, yeah, is isn't it, the is same as solitary confinement. Harm. Yeah. <laughs> A solitary confinement. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, 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 but deliberately, deliberately poisoning other minds is morally bad. Right. Right. Or, or one could, it's, it's very, very easy to make the argument that, that harming other minds, especially in this case where bodies don't matter, right? Right. Where everything's just meat and synthetic materials and we get downloaded into whatever, then the only thing that matters morally probably is harming other minds, right? right. Uh, it, because the, the bodies don't matter, the physical bodies, you can, you can reduce that to an economic problem, right? And so that trauma is the thing. It's the, it's the only thing. It's, you know, sticks and sc stones can break my bones, but words can hurt me forever. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's a really interesting set of questions and it's, um, yeah, it, it's both altered uh, carbon and, um, Westworld are shows that we're going to explore the ethics of more on this, uh, on this podcast at a later point. Um, and it's part of why I was so excited to get in this discussion now. Um, I'm also going to say just as an aside, um, I am quite certain that, um, former co-host, um, Jacob Leachich, um, 
is is ranting at his uh uh car radio as he's listening to us or wherever he's listening to us now because i know he um uh he, he to, to give an indication his twitter name is bots or people too uh and i think he's going to be on the other end of the spectrum entirely about the moral weight uh given to robots so if nothing else, um, one of my goals at my wedding is going to be to get the three of you around a table discussing this, because um, I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. <laughs> see, see, I'm not on the I'm not on the other side. I think that once something is declared sentient, it has moral weight and it's alive, and then you have some problems. Right. So we should actually probably try to make sure that our our modules don't accidentally become sentient when we like, if, you know, we just don't link them up together enough. Right. Uh, if we're talking about altered carbon, though, can I steer us onto the ethics of uploading? Yeah, please do. Uh, so, the well, one of the things that altered carbon presupposes and gets presupposed a lot, which is like, you can upload consciousness. This is a, a much more difficult problem than AI, actually. Uploading people is very, very hard. Mm. And You've tried? But we can... <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's just a lot of physical pieces to a person, right? There's the, the the neurological aspect of the electrical signals. There's the neurochemical aspect. There's the the fact that every our whole neurological system is linked together. So the things that you see and the interpretations by your optic nerve and the interpretations by your your brain are all linked together. If you change the eyes, you change the brain sometimes. Right. And that means that humans are much are a very very complicated system to model uh, effectively pretend that you can't like it's it, it, this is science fiction right, right? Um, if you can upload a person is it ethical to make a copy of them and then torture it and then delete it if they aren't there anymore and the original person is unaffected is it okay Yes, well, if you uh, read Ray Kurt yep. Kurzweil and the book uh, The Singularity yep. is Near, uh, his claim is that uploading is not uh, just science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what's interesting is uh, that there are lots of projects that are trying to capture a lot of uh, behavioral issues and uh, image and sound and things like that and then replay them mm -hmm. back. Uh, and and uh, just, just like the Turing test... Uh, is a question of a human or robot. When you restore a person uh, into a virtual reality, if if you cannot tell them uh, from the person that you used to know, uh, the detail is not right. important. And so the, the real question is, how much detail uh, should you restore? And what is the essence of some of that personality? And uh, I, I think um, uh, restoring the state of every neuron in the brain. I mean, having a uh, a virus that traverses your brain and uh, and restores that neural network. That, that's certainly not uh, required to to synthesize uh, a person. So I I think the first thing is that uh, we're going to see a lot of progress in creating virtual realities of people that have passed away. Uh, I know there was. Uh, our articles just recently about uh, you know doing 3D uh, cameras and uh, asking people 20,000 questions and then being able to replay those uh, so that you can have a dialogue with you know people that that uh, were involved in the Holocaust right. and things. So those are those are projects that are on ongoing yeah, right low now. Low-level modeling. What's, and, yeah. what's really 
Yeah, what's really interesting is uh, where do you take it next? Uh, and could you just uh, record uh, uh, videos of people for the last year, uh, put a body camera on them, and come up with a model that's so accurate uh, that nobody could tell the difference. And I think we will be able to do that. We don't really need to scan uh, people's stars. And then there are a lot of interesting ethical yeah. questions about those right. models. And what do you do? And how fragile are they? And, and can, they be, can they be altered uh, if we wanted to uh, introduce a certain personality into a person that's no longer there? Those are all great questions. Yeah. And it raises so many interesting questions for me about, about like you said, it, it's what is the very essence of life and, and, and of sentience? Because... I think for me, one of the things that's been, that rolls around at the back of my mind for all these questions is, and I, I grant, I, I'm going to give a completely non-scientific answer here um, because I, I, I do approach life from a spiritual perspective of a deeply agnostic one, but of an understanding of that there being something to ourselves that is beyond just the, you know, a series of, of yes, no questions in our brain or something like that. And I, I always wrestle with this because that to me is always one of the, the lines of, um, that, that I do think, Dan, I, I disagree with you in terms of the moral weight of a, a sentient being like a, a robot. To me, I, I see it as something that, that, that still has a moral value. But I also wrestle with it because I, I, don't, I don't know if it has a soul in the way I understand it. Um, and I, again, that language is kind of almost meaningless in a scientific discussion. But um, it, it's one that I think about a lot when we, we get into this question of, like, could you upload the human consciousness? Because, I mean, just to give one example, I... I am a person who has only one leg. Uh, I, have a, I have a prosthetic leg, but I have an amputation. You, you both know that. Um, and I think mm -hmm. our fans probably know that. Um, but to me, I, I, when I watch the kind of things that happen on a show like Altered Carbon, I think, what would it do if you took my consciousness and then downloaded me into a body that had two working legs? Um, this example sounds almost trite compared to the kind of thing I'm thinking about, but it, 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 a lot of what I'm getting at is it, it, it seems an interesting idea to kind of separate the mind entirely from the body when our lived experience is such an embodied one. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I guess I'm not really going anywhere with this. Just, just this general idea of like, for me, this is what I love about AI is it raises all these great questions of it makes us probe what are the assumptions we have about the body and not. Um, one thing I love about the show Altered Carbon is it really plays with that because it um, in, in a great economic commentary it goes into the idea that the ability to download your consciousness into the exact body that you would want is an economic privilege. And so you have situations where, you know, if you're being given a body by the state for some reason or kind of a, a low-income body, that you might get downloaded into a different gender or a different race or a body totally not like your own. Um, so, yeah, just, just a lot of really fascinating questions there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And there's there's a wealth of written work about simulating consciousness about uh Kurtzweil, Kurtzweil is obviously the the source of it but like Werner Vinge has written some truly excellent pieces about what does it mean to have an uploaded consciousness my favorite one's the cookie monster which I think is the best story he's ever written but uh is it ethical to upload somebody without their consent and then force them to do work yeah like and then reboot them you know you you did your you did your day of customer service work forever it's you know <laughs> I, I mean one of the things that occurs to me is um because yeah my, my first thought was that like the kind of westworld discussion of encouraging the human desire to do damage to another human because it's fun or because it might be therapeutic is not the best idea 
But then I also know, and I'm going to be very clear, I'm not a psychotherapist by any means, and I have, again, a very layman's understanding of this. Um, I know that one of the kind of therapies that is sometimes done for people who've gone through very traumatic incidents is, you know, the idea of like, you know, imagine the person who who hurt you is standing right here. What would you say to them? What would you do to them? And, and sometimes it can involve like, you know, put their picture on a punching bag and, and hit them the way you wish you could or something like that. Um, and so now imagine what if you could create a, a literal like, you know, representation of a sentient being that is the person who harmed you and would doing harm to you, would harming them be therapeutic to your process? Would it be harmful to your process? And would it, would it, you know, does that justify whatever damage you're doing to the, this being that you've created of, of the person who did harm? Um, yeah, I I think there's just so many interesting questions we can go with that. Yeah, I, I think the bottom line is that this whole idea of uploading is a really great area for uh, thought mm -hmm. experiments. Uh, and the reason is that we have AI systems that can watch video and watch speech and build internal mm -hmm. models. Uh, and so that we could, in fact, uh, build synthetic models of people that are indistinguishable from the people that we know and love. And uh, that's going to change uh, the way that we interact with right. the world in the future. Yep. And, and, and there again, that, that gets robbed the kind of question you were asking where, you know, the ability to change someone. Because if it's like, you know, you're, you you terribly <clears throat> miss your, your grandparent who was, um, you know, a wonderful person, but was also a product of their times and was a little bit racist and every now and then made a comment that made you a little uncomfortable. Right. Could you mm -hmm. bring yes. back your grandfather, <laughs> but not quite so racist like that? T take out. That's a great story. I love Oof. that. That's a great right. idea. Uh, w could you? Would you want to walk into a room with all of your ancestors? You know, the last hundred people, uh, and and in fact, uh, ten generations from now, maybe that'll happen. You'll walk back mm -hmm. into a simulation of your last generations, and maybe you want to learn from your ancestors because they will be mm -hmm. preserved there. Uh, there's a there's a short story collection called TimeGate where. They use modeling on historical figures to make AI emulations of the historical figures, and they they have these problems. And some of them, in one of the stories, the AIs get the chance, the the emulation models get the chance to alter themselves. And of course, Voltaire turns into a staunch, uh, a staunch uh, religious zealot, right? Because he edits out a lot of the trauma that made him what he was, and. Another good question. So you you asked about you know if you could make a simulation of somebody and then do something to hurt them, it, you could make a simulation of yourself, right? And you could watch your simulation and then fight. <laughs> but then here's here here's then my follow up question. Let's pretend that you could do that a hundred, a thousand, a million times, ten million times until until you were good at the end, until you were happy, till you were better. Hmm. Are you obligated to do so? Are you obligated to be the best person that you can be by editing yourself? Oh, I, well, I, I mean, and also then it like one of the things that I always think is interesting is when there's a lot of things that science can do now that bothers people that is really just a much more speeded up version of something we've always done. You know, like when mm -hmm. uh, I, this is going to be a, a, a long tangent, but I promise it's relevant. You know, people talk about, um, you know, how afraid they are of gen genetically modified organisms. Um Broccoli is a genetically modified organism. Um, every form right, of it's dog, mustard seed. Yeah, the dog and most forms of dogs, mo most breeds of dogs 
are all genetically modified organisms. We just it, the breeding process was a lot slower. Um, and I I bring that up because on the one hand, like you know what you raise, the idea of like reprogramming yourself to make yourself the better version of yourself seems disturbing. And yet that's what I've done going to therapy for the last, you know, however many years, it's just a much slower process. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and yet right. I mean, it's right. an question of like, I think that there's absolutely nothing wrong morally with taking chemicals to change the way my brain works. Um, yeah. I, I, I think where but I would there really are people come... to do say again, <laughs> but there are people that do. Right. Um, like, well, and, and, and I mean, that's a whole other debate to be sure, but I, yeah, well, and I guess part of what it comes down to is, I think for me, the key here is the self-choice, you know, that I am going to like, in terms of to take the mental health example further, you know, I, I am a big believer that I should have the right to try and better my mental health, but it should be to the goals that I set, you know, um, 50 years ago, you know, we would have people who were. Uh, living lives that many people would look at and think are not good lives, but we're, you know, creating art or doing wonderful things. And, and, and even 50 years ago, even today, you know, there are people who will be um, society will, or the law will try to force to be on their medication to be what is societally understood to be mental health, um, even though it's not what the person wants. Um, and, and I think, I think that's where I would always draw the line is like, if, if there's technology available that allows you to make yourself the person you want to be, I, I think I'm always okay with that. I think it, where it gets problematic is the um, what I think of as the Professor X from the X-Men kind of idea where it's I see someone else and I think they're not being their best self. Like, I mean, hmm. I, I'm thinking of myself around in circles here. I promise I'll get to a question. Well, here, but here, Go ahead. How about this question? You have the ability to edit yourself to make yourself better. It's, uh, take that as a given if you're, right. you're in an, a world where you can edit your upload, right? Are you obligated to edit yourself to want to be better? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, that's – well, because, again, I, I think what it comes down to is it's the sort of like, do you get to define what is better or does society get to say – you know, to take an extreme example, like, you know, um, someone who is uh, ha- has pedophilic desires, you know, are universally for very good reasons understood as incredibly harmful ways for a person's brain to work. Um, that person might not think that that's a bad part of their brain. Um, as you understand it, because it, it, it really is a, a sickness, a mental disease. Um, we as a society think that that should not be. So do we as a society get to say, you're not allowed to have a brain that works that way? Um, yeah, I, I think where I come down to it is the kind of idea of, I think in the end, the person still has to make the choice. But then we get to say, if you have those desires, then we are going to mandate that you be placed in a situation where you cannot act on those desires to do harm. Um, but that you still get the choice. Um, I, I guess that's what I would, and I'm, I think maybe a less extreme example, but a, a similar one would be, um, would an addict have to use this technology to make themselves not an addict to something, you know, problematic, like, like cocaine or, or, or heroin or the like. Um, so I think, I think that's where I'd come down at, but what are your, what are your all thoughts? Well, I, I'm, I think that if you're talking about the virtual world and you're editing a virtual self, uh, uh, people working in the virtual world, you can do lots of things as long as you're not harming anything Mm. in the real world. (laughs) Uh, But in the real world, uh, there are a lot of very important ethical issues about uh, your 
desire and ability to change other people's cognitive right. states. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think those are very relevant questions. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot, lot of important In issues In some ways, there. I feel like, Dan, it goes back to the point you brought up before about human bias and historical data. Because, um, you know, I, I feel like any time we start to say that society believes this is what is a better, this is the best version of you, and so you're in your thought experiment, Rob, obligated to be the best experiment of, version of you, you know, a hundred years ago, society would have spoken with one voice and said that if you're gay, that that is not the best version of you. And so that should be edited out of your personality. And I'm sure that there are, I, I would hope that in a hundred years, we would look at a personality of most of the billionaires in our world and say, they have a level of greed that is not desirable in our, in our society. And so we would want that edited out. Um, I, I guess you say, I, I feel like because because that idea of what is cognitively desirable is so subjective that any attempt to do that really scares me. I agree. I agree. And I think it's very, also very dangerous to uh, create a very homogeneous set yes. of thoughts. Yeah. I think a lot of our, our things in our, in our society happen when people are thinking about the world in different ways. So that variability is something that is a virtue. And so uh, uh, e even though people might appear to be radicals or schizophrenics or uh, nonconformists, uh, those are often good for society. There's a lot of um, discussion in the world of mental health awareness of, of that idea of that, um, that there's obvious psychic that, – that, that one understanding of depression is – having a better understanding of the, the psychic pain of the world, you know, and I, I don't mean that in a, a spiritual sense, but just to like, you know, that, that you're not, you're, 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 you're feeling that pain on, on more levels. You're more aware of the, the, the brokenness in our world or in yourself and that dealing with the symptoms of that is good, but that cutting out that, you know, making everyone just be happy with the world around them means no one's fighting to change it. Um, let me, um, just kind of, we don't have too much more time and I want to kind of hit us a few of the other issues, uh, transition us a bit. Um, We've touched on this idea of of why humanity is is why so much fiction talks about AI as the enemy, um, and, and we made some good points. But I want to dive a little bit deeper there because the the question I want to ask is it it seems like so much of science fiction postulates that if AI becomes sentient, eventually there's going to be conflict between like you know carbon based life forms and silicon based life forms. It, it am I understanding that both of you are pretty agreed in thinking that that's a a foolish conceit of science fiction, and there's no reason to think that 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 kind of conflict would, would be necessary? No, I, I, I just want to make sure that uh, I, I believe that silicon intelligence will dramatically exceed biological mm. intelligence. There's no question about that yeah. in my mind. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it might not be 40 or 50 or 60, but certainly in 100 years from now, uh, you'll be able to have a single chip that is uh, orders of magnitude has more uh, compute and cognitive ability uh, than any human being. Uh, I think that's absolutely inevitable. And there's obviously going to be a lot of questions that arise from that. Uh, and, you know, the whole, the whole book Superintelligence is a good uh, example mm -hmm. of those uh, uh, stories about that. And, and many people are only starting to become aware that that's going to be hot, hot possible as they start to see uh, intelligence uh, really become 
uh, surprising. Um, and you know, one of my best examples is if you haven't seen the documentary on the uh, AlphaGo and uh, them beating the uh, Go players in Korea, the best Go players in the world, uh, where the the way that they start to see these things, the behavior they come out of that is just uh, stunning and amazing and shocking. And I think we're going to start to see those in the next 20 years too. And as we do, then we're going to have a better uh, handle on what what the dangers really are and what the dangers are only imagined. Uh, but I think right now we're only at the cusp of starting to understand and fathom uh, building something that has better abilities than ourself. And I think that's very hard for people to grasp today. Right. Like, yeah. Well, the... I think that that trying to predict the nature of the singularity, because that's what you're talking about, is is yes. a point past which you can't see. Um, another way to term it: Have you read um, Ian M. Banks? No, oh, I have not. You, you would love the culture the culture novels. Um, he describes an outside context problem, um, and he describes it as a a civilization. Uh, encounters an outside context problem in the same way that a sentence encounters a period. Hmm. Uh, and so it's a problem for which the civilization just didn't have any context. The the Spanish arriving on the shores of the Aztec and Incan empires is an outside context problem. They had no idea how to deal with it. It was, it was completely foreign to their thinking. And as a civilization, we we don't necessarily have the cognitive tools to deal with something smarter than us. Yeah. And uh, we, people have played with the concepts, but it's, it's very difficult to manage and imagine. And uh, if you, if you look at the, the writings of, um, I wrote the laundry files and, uh, iron sunrise and singularity sky and Luther, or, uh, 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 Charles Strauss. Yeah, Charles Strauss. Charles Strauss, like, deals with, you know, what happens when we bootstrap up to bigger intelligences? What happens when things that are smarter than us run around? Leviathans of thought. Right. And uh, they're, they're difficult questions to answer. Uh, I don't think that we, the AI will be necessarily, you know, Skynet trying to destroy mankind. I think machines of loving kindness I, are possible, but I think that it's going to be us, but bigger in a lot of ways. There's going to be a mix of motives and a mix of cognitive tools and a mix of thoughts and a mix of things. And it's going to be, it's chaotic and difficult to predict. And it's all beyond the boundary of what we, what our civilization and what our language even has a good handle on. Well, I, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of it goes back to the point that you brought up uh, towards the beginning, Dan, about how a lot of our media is based on what is it that, that we as audience members are afraid of. Um, and mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we're definitely afraid of is the idea of that, that we're not at the top of the intelligence food chain. Um, on a, an episode of this uh, podcast that has not gone live yet, but that will be up by the time um, uh, uh by the time the episode you're listening to now is up, the episode I'm about to talk about will have already been up for a week or so. Um, it, it's an episode we're doing on Q from the Star Trek um, uh, Next Generation and, and, and later shows. And one of the things we get into in that is that it seems so much science fiction wants to postulate the idea that 
humanity is somehow better than all the other alien races, that we have something that makes us special. And so that beings like Q will always sort of say, like, you, you humans are the ones we're particularly interested in, not the Vulcans, not the Romulans, not the Dominion, that, that you have a, a particular je ne sais quoi or a particular level of curiosity or whatever it is. Um, and, and I think it's because so much of our you know, science fiction comes out of this idea of the, the hubris of humanity. Um, and, <laughs> and, and so it's interesting to me that because I'm thinking, you're right, that, Dan, it's not just that um, we're afraid of the unknown and, and the idea of artificial intelligence is very much that, but it's also and the lack of control. But it's also the idea that maybe we won't be the smartest beings on the planet. What does that mean? And I think that that's there's a very real fear there that I think a lot of science fiction, especially the more mass media stuff, just kind of exploits that fear for drama instead of really diving deep into it. Yeah, I, I'd love to see a, a science fiction show where an AI writes a business plan that's better than any other business plan right. people write. <laughs> <laughs> so those are all things that will will happen yeah. in the next century. I very years. rarely will cite this person in a positive way, but um, have either of you read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein? I've read yeah, I almost have. all of Heinlein's Okay. Um, I read <laughs> that's that, my favorite Heinlein novel. Though. Yeah. Uh, I, I read that, well, then Robert, you can maybe um, really fill me in here, but because I read it probably 25 years ago. Um, but my memory of that is a central plot point is that there is this computer that kind of knows best what's best for humanity. And that a, a lot of the plot is people getting the computer to make the decisions, but dressing it up in such a way that people don't realize that the computer is making the decisions. Um, be, because on the one hand, like the, the computer is the best thing to make these decisions for humanity, but humanity would not accept that. Am I grossly misremembering the plot or am I at all in a ballpark? Mycroft is smart, but he's he's learning, and he it, part part of it is they keep handing more and more stuff off to him because they they don't know how to do it, and they uh, he does a lot of things that computers do really well, very well: calculating launch trajectories, handling phone switching, managing a a bunch of different cells of a revolution in communication with each other as the third person in every cell right but um they actually all of the actual governmental decisions the human decisions are still done by the humans you know mm, they okay. they form a democracy and everything and then at the end he it is left ambiguous whether he switches himself off or just stops talking to people because he decides that he can't make those like if he keeps going he'll have to make all the human decisions for them and my read is that he feels like he can't mm. um that one way or another he feels like humans should be the keepers of their own destiny which is a theme that runs through a bunch of other science fiction uh about ais where they go well ultimately the decision for humans has to come to humans they're responsible for themselves right uh, but is it fair to say that like i i am not a parent myself yet but i i know that often in sort of literature about parenting and stuff there's this idea that eventually you know, even if your child is going to make a mistake, you have to let the child make the make the mistake for themselves and make that decision for themselves and not do it for them. Is this kind of a similar I, idea that you'd, the, you'd be yeah. limiting the uh, intellectual right. growth of humanity by making those decisions uh, for them? A lot of science fiction has that, but it carries baked within it this weird concept that the AI, which is in a lot of ways our child, is our superior mm. and then decides to let – like. We make the AI. The AI is smarter than us. The AI could make better decisions. We let it make the decisions, and then it says it doesn't want to make them anymore. It's our job again. Interesting. What, <laughs> that's a, it's a strange conceit, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, well, and it, I think as part of it is, 
it gets this thing that I'm coming back to of like, you know, who is it that decides what's the right decision and what's the, what's the value of being wrong in terms of your own learning? Um, the, uh, and, and Dan, actually, I've been wanting to find a chance for you to talk about the diamond age. And I think this is a really good, good, uh, segue to it because I, I, I'm really interested in, you know, to me, the idea that learning isn't just the, um, you know, the, if then trees that we talked about at the beginning of sort of pre sentient AI, but that, you know, learning in, in certainly in people and maybe in, in computers is when you can get to the point of, of learning from a mistake and learning to, to have curiosity and learning to, you know, make the decision on your own rather than do, you know, that your parents might think you should do this in this situation, but you actually can come to your, that you can use what you learn to make a different decision than either who raised you or who programmed you. Um, so, so based on that, um, Dan, can you talk a little bit about the diamond age and sort of what it has to say about the, what AI can do in terms of education? Sure, sure. Uh, I just uh, I recommended this book to Matthew. It's probably one of my favorite uh, science fiction books by Neil mm-hmm. Stevenson, and uh, and it uh, the the it has several plot lines, but one of them is uh, a little girl who discovers this magic uh, iPad like device, uh, and it's uh, programmed to teach to 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 bond to a their student and to get, continually give them lessons uh, and adapt to their learning uh, and uh, to uh, 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 have an, a knowledge system so that they're they're building a very accurate model of their student and always uh, figuring out ways to tell use storytelling or games or play or whatever whatever the methods are uh, to help their students uh, achieve their objectives and. I've always thought of that as a metaphor for mm-hmm. going through life uh, is that I want to build systems around me that adapt to our students' needs uh, and that uh, uh, give them the lesson plans and recommendations. So a lot of my uh, writing and uh, the, the TEDx talk that I did was about uh, these things called knowledge spaces and uh, how we actually model those things. Uh, I thought Neil did a really interesting job of painting that picture of what it could be like uh, and uh, it opened up a lot of uh, thought experiments uh, for me about what uh, what we should be doing with AI and that AI is in a sense going to be a cognitive coach that lives with us every day and helps us achieve our objectives and that's the most benevolent AI uh, that I can think of. Uh, somebody who's always there to assist you. And I think we see that in many little, uh, every time we ask Siri or uh, Alexa, what's the weather today? Aren't, aren't they really helping us access information and uh, helping us make de- better decisions? So I see a lot of uh, future stories built around those scenarios. Uh, so Diamond Age was one of my uh, books that I read early on that helped me formulate those very positive and optimistic views of AI. Yeah, it's it's um I, I will say as someone who's not versed in the the theory, um, it's a book I struggled with, but I I thought it was really helpful and really gave me a much better understanding of, you you know what's the difference between a machine that can just provide information to the question you asked versus a a machine that can can maybe um I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this like it it seems that the it would often anticipate the question that would could be derived from the questions you're already asking, but that you don't know how to ask yet. Um, and I thought that was such an interesting sort right, of switch in right. terms of the, the way it could go in, in intelligence. 
Exactly right. It has a mental model for of mm -hmm. your brain inside of it. It knows everything you know, and it's not going to challenge you on things you already know. It knows things that you are incapable of learning uh, because you don't have the right cognitive framework to understand mm -hmm. those. It knows about your what's called your zone of proximal development, to use a, an mm -hmm. education term. Uh, it knows exactly what concepts you're ready to learn, and it builds curriculum for you on demand uh, to fill in those things so you can get to your next level of learning. And those that's really what a lot of the AI researchers uh, have been focusing on. And and in fact, uh, they're building systems in place. And in China, they're they're spending billions of dollars to build uh, adaptive learning systems uh, that every time you you watch a video, take a quiz. Uh, they assess you, they figure out where you are, and they build new lesson plans on that. And uh, and for China, that makes a lot of sense because they have so many people that are going to go through that system and they have centralized control. Here in the United States, we don't have that. We have decentralized schools and every school can't afford to build these right. AI systems. And the question is, who will build it? And uh, how will we catch the Chinese because they're going to be way, way out in front for us? Well, I mean, and that alone opens up a whole other set of questions, which we, we can't really get into, but is the, you know, when AI is being designed, um, not just by, you know, scientists in a laboratory with public funding, but, but AI is being designed for commercial purposes, uh, like, you know, and, and some very good ones, like as Dan, you and I were talking before the call, but about how some of the AI that you're working on is, is really helping to kind of um, shepherd information research towards finding a COVID vaccine or, or, or things like, or, or mm -hmm. helping to allocate resources. But but I think it's an interesting thing to, to keep in mind with all this is that like most science in our modern world, because it's at least especially in this country being driven primarily by um, by corporate needs, that that's really going to shape the kind of AI that we wind up with. Because it's it's the, the, as far as I understand, at least there aren't people who have massive amounts of funding sitting around trying to say, how can we build AI to make the world better? It's how can we build AI to make this corporate function more efficient? How can I build AI to keep getting a paycheck? Right. Yeah. And and in some cases, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, I imagine there's always the payoff, uh, the trade-off there because, um, you know, uh, and here also is, is where that fear comes in. I was going to mention this a, a while ago, but, you know, Dan, when you were talking about the, 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 the goals of the kind of AI that you're, you're, that you're, you're helping to design, which can make the ability of humans to access healthcare information that much faster and that much more efficient. That's a fantastic goal. Um, the flip side of that is that people who work in call centers lose their jobs. Um, and I, you know, I, I think as a progress idea, that's probably the right thing to do. And, and, and that can get us to all sorts of questions about uh, employment, universal basic income and all that, which is outside the realm of today. But, but I think it's just one more example of the, every time we talk about this advancing, there's all the sort of knock-on effects that it has that, that I think are interesting to consider. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's very hard questions, and like the the questions oftentimes, like if you if you have AI that anticipates you and understands you and does what's you know best to give you things to reach out for, you end up in the culture. In E and M banks, is everything's guided by uh, super sentient AIs that are that are smart enough to control ships the size of planets and every person on them and do it for the good of the people on them. Uh, and they, it, like, is that is that what we want? Should we be steering towards that? Like, 
should we be steering towards uploading everybody and running everybody in simulations in a chunk of computronium the size of the sun? Mm. Like, should we be looking at Matroska brains? Like, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems with, with, like, figuring out what the thing that we are going to do is. Right. Like, are we going to, are we going to give AIs ethics, basically? Yeah. Are we going to make them? Are we going to make them think that some things are better than others? Are we going to? Are we going to like train them on a lexicon of you know watching The Good Place and then reading all of the you know supplementary readings that that show has? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's funny. Like, I, my degree is actually in a part of my degree is in ethics, and I remember one of the first things that the professor said was that, as she understood it, if at the end of the class we all had the same ethical system that she did, then she had done a terrible job of teaching. That what what she wanted us to do was to <laughs> learn how to design our own ethical system and stick to it rather than just learn, you know, this is ethically right, this is ethically wrong. Um, and, and so my question becomes, especially given what we just talked about, about the, the bias of the you know former data, um, how, how would we be able to do that in such a way that it's not just teaching a computer to have our ethics, but teaching a computer how to develop the ethics of, it, of its own? I have I have a better question. If something smarter than us develops its own ethical system, do you think we'd be able to understand it? Oof, that's a good question. Very good question. Yeah. And yeah. like, if that like, if its ethical system insists that you know only AIs should live or only humans should live, like if it's if it bootstraps itself up to being super intelligent. Uh, we teach it ethics. It looks around and says, "Huh," and then shuts itself off. What? I, <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, like, um, there's a lot of uh, science fiction, both good and bad. But I think at least there's like probably four or five different uh, episodes of either Star Trek or Babylon Five or something like that, where um, a robot was designed, an artificial intelligence was designed to you know, protect something and then came to realize that the designers of the artificial intelligence were the biggest threat to it. And so that filling out that mandate is involves destroying it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that the, the quickest way you could teach an AI to, um, uh, destroy humanity is by teaching it that its first rule is to protect the environment at all costs. Um, cause you know, I think the first <laughs> yep, thing you do point. is say, okay, yeah. let's get rid of these carbon, you know, spewing life forms and, and give it back to the dolphins and monkeys. Um. Yeah, not all of them. You you keep a keep about ten million. That'll <laughs> right, be about enough. You make it, you make nature preserves. Yeah. There's a. Put uh, yes. Have you read anything by Jack L. Chalker, Dan? Okay. No, I haven't. Um, there's a the the Rings of the Master series. It turns out that everything happened because an AI in the Cold War got bootstrapped up and got told humankind must. Um, it, it, human leaders must determine the course of human fate, and also humankind must survive. And then they turned over the the scientists turned over the keys to the nuclear arsenal and said, uh, "Solve this problem." Hmm. And the AI said, "Well, um, I'm diasporing humankind out to space because I said humankind must survive, and uh, they're all going to govern themselves underneath my rules. And uh, I'm turning the Earth back into a nature preserve uh, with like weird." historical exhibits of about 10 million people yeah there's um there's an orson scott card novel and i'm generally not a fan of him because of his politics but i I thought that the one conceit of this was 
pretty interesting. And, and maybe you all know the book I'm talking about. I, my understanding is that it's it's based kind of on the Book of Mormon itself. But one of the conceits of it is that there's a uh, a, a human-like race living on a planet that in many ways is fairly technologically advanced, but is incapable of conceiving of the idea of the wheel because the the computer AI that sort of manages all of them has come to understand that the wheel, you know, that, that without the wheel, humanity will stay isolated enough and that, that transportation won't be enough, that, that you will avoid great conflict between societies because societies will always be fairly cut off. Um, do you have any idea what, what book I'm talking about? Have you read this or, or heard about it? Okay. No, I well, haven't. It, it's just a very interesting idea, I think, because it's 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 sort of positing this thing that you, you never think of, like, okay, how do you remove violence from the human character? Like, remove the wheel is not the thing I think that most people would think of, but it, it gives a fairly logical explanation of why this would be. Um, I, I, we're, we're, we've gone about two hours now, which has been a, a great conversation, but quite a long <laughs> one. I know we all have stuff we need to be doing. Um, so I want to kind of throw out one last question, which could probably be another two hour of conversation on this question, but um, at least dive into it somewhat. A lot of what I keep thinking about as I hear, hear you both talk is the difference between objective versus subjective knowledge. Like, you know, if you ask a computer, what is the weather today? Like it, it is objectively a particular degree that that's something you can figure out. Um, a lot of things like what is the moral value of something or what is the, um, you know, what morality should you use? I think we as humans, and the whole basis of this podcast is that that those are subjective discussions. Um, Asimov certainly is proposing you you could give ethical, objective rules, but that's still there to be some degree of subjectivity. Um, and so obviously there's a huge set of questions there, but the, the thing I guess and I, I want to drill down on is, as a thought experiment, if you imagine that you took two AIs that were both programmed in exactly the same way, um, would they both always come to the same ethical con- would they both always make the same ethical decision in the same situation or because I, I i guess what i'm getting at is to me part of the part of what makes us human is that we think in different ways and that you and i might be faced with an identical human ethical situation and come to different perspectives on it um could we imagine that ais would do that or would ais because of the way because at the end they're programmed always come to the same conclusion about what we think of as a subjective problem well i think First of all, there there are are two programming models. Uh, deterministic mm-hmm. is a uh, programming systems where you give it the same inputs and it will always give you exactly the same outputs. Uh, uh, Boolean logic, if then else, uh, uh, procedural programming, uh, all those things are are very very consistent, and those two computers would always uh, have the same. Uh, there's a completely different set of logic, uh, which you which requires randomness, uh, and uses things like genetic algorithms uh, to uh, create programs uh, and simulate uh, different conditions inside themselves and uh, 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 score each of those algorithms based on how they come out, and then randomly evolve mm. those algorithms. And those are completely non-deterministic and they are intentionally designed to come out with different and more creative uh, solutions and uh, you run the same algorithm on the uh, two computers that are running a genetic program and they will always come out with different things just like uh, th- there's uh, different species that uh, evolve through different uh, circumstances to take over different niches so uh, I think the answer is it, it all depends on how they're programmed but clearly 
what we know about the science of genetics and the application of those uh, to really solve problems in creative ways, you have to combine uh, both deterministic and uh, genetic algorithms. Uh, so the answer is th they will come out okay. different. Uh, I wanted to clarify the question a little bit too. Please do. I'm... Because when you say, yeah, when you say programmed exactly the same, let's pretend, so I, one of the models of human cognition is that we have a bunch of modules that link together, right? Mm -hmm. And so you could have like an ethics module in an, in an AI or a human, right? And, you know, you develop your own ethics module through ethics study, and I develop my own through, you know, reading a bunch of bad science fiction and, you know, yeah. modeling. What, well, but it, they, that's also, like, fiction is getting inside of people's heads, but oh, yeah. I have a whole thing about that. But let's say that you copy-pasted the ethics module from something that developed an ethics module to something else that developed an ethics module. Is that your question? If they If they have the exact same... If they if they copied this component of artificial intelligence over exactly to another one, I, I, would they behave the same? I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is, as I understand it, that things like ethics are subjective, um, and that my understanding is, at least as we understand it now, computers are only capable of objective thinking. Um, and and I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is could we design an AI in theory that was able to approach a a topic like morality? from a subjective standpoint in, in such that, that in the same way that two humans can come to different moral, moral conclusions that, to, that two, that, um, uh, that two computer, that two AIs could do the same thing. I mean, yes, that's, that's very possible. Like Dan pointed out the, the technical components. Right. I was curious about the, like, what do I mean by that? Them being the same? Right. Because there, there's a lot of technical levels to, something being able to be the same that you know if you develop a good working you know facial recognition algorithm that dan was talking earlier about people who copy each other's facial recognition algorithms uh from an open source system if you have an open source ethics module mm. which is a a weird concept now that i say it uh, but if you had this if you had an open source ethics module that had been edited and kept up to date and managed by a bunch of different people and you decided it you know, like, you know, Ubuntu Ethics was the the best choice for you because I don't know why. Right. Uh, it, you you install this ethics module. Well, you probably come to the same decisions in different situations once you've once you've got this copy pasted exact duplicate of somebody that ethics module. Right. Uh, assuming that you can make subjective value decisions, is that good? That you can. Yeah directly linearly copy subjective decision making yeah i mean i it's funny because you say the phrase like open source ethics module and i kind of think like that that's a, a fancy way of saying you know philosophy like that that i mean the, the entire school but, of human thought well, is is you <laughs> know open source ethics module like i, I actually kind of want right. to make that the title of a book maybe <laughs> because that because that's what it is it's humanity like coming together and discussing you know ethical problems and learning and, and growing and i Right. The, the the reason that it's weird to me is that anybody can edit it. Yeah. And you can make bug reports that other people can <laughs> fix the ethics module. And it's just like, I, I would like to make a bug report on the trolley problem. It seems very strange to me. Yeah, but but I but I mean, I think, you know, like yep. when a piece of science fiction says, you know, I, in our world, we take something for granted. And I think that that's dumb. And so I'm going to tell a story in which... We, we sort of expose that dumb thing and imagine a world without it. Like that's, 
that it's kind of exactly what that's doing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a metaphor and stretching it to its absolute extreme, but, um, uh, that would, that'd be a fascinating story though, where, uh, you have self-driving cars and you put an ethics module in so that they can make a decision about whether or not to kill their, you know, drive into a wall and kill the passenger versus kill the three people on the sidewalk versus kill the one person in the, in the right. crosswalk, right? Well, you have an open source ethics module. Yeah. Can people edit the open source ethics module the car is relying on? Yeah. I mean, well, and can you do that... can you do it while you're in the car? <laughs> yeah. So so <laughs> Yeah, so so these neural networks uh, they just take lots of mm -hmm. inputs and they weigh them all with different weights and they come up with a scoring mm -hmm. thing. And so uh, what you have is a, a, a neural network that has a turn left, turn right, and go straight uh, uh, choice here. And then everything it sees in the scene goes into those neural networks and weighted, and it should be tested. Those modules will always have bugs and need to be tested. Uh, you know, uh, maybe age is something you should take into account. Uh, you'd rather... Uh, steer into an elderly person rather than a young person because there's more opportunity for them. Uh, and uh, so those are all things that are going to be real mm -hmm. variations of those trolley problems. Uh, and yes, there will be modules that well, can score and, and, those things. But just to give that as an example, like I, you know, I, you know, what, the point you make about age, I, I imagine that a 30-year-old AI programmer and a 75 year old AI programmer are going to have a very different opinion on how valuable, you know, that is. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So ethics is definitely subjective. I, I will also just throw cases. out to right. our, um, uh, our listeners as other things to look forward to. There is now a game apparently called trolley problems or something like that. Yes. Um, and um, uh, at some point in time, uh, COVID may well be pushing back the date of it, but at some point in time, I'm going to be having a bachelor party when, among other things, um, Rob, uh, Paul, my first co-host, uh, Jacob, my other co-host, uh, and a few others are all going to be gathering for a weekend to play games. Uh, I have the idea of us all getting together to play Trolley Problem and recording it to make an episode. <laughs> gonna... Trial by Trolley is the is Death the by Trolley, yeah, thank you. Yeah, trial by Trolley. Trial by Trolley, yeah. Um, yeah. So just uh, something to think about while we uh, have all this Trolley Problem on the brain. Um, so that was my kind of like the last thing I wanted to touch on. And let me let me kind of throw it out to you all. Do you have um, one more point that you didn't get a chance to make or a question you want to bring up that we didn't get a chance to get into as we kind of wrap up? I, I just wanted to put in a plug that uh, the book Superintelligence mm -hmm. uh, really does bring up a lot of these uh, uh, observations and, and problems and uh, things like that. And uh, even though it's, that is a very hard book, uh, to read. I think there's a lot of good uh, material in there for Great. future discussions. Um, yeah, and one thing um, to our listeners, every book and movie and uh, idea that we've discussed here is going to be in the show notes. I'm going to put a link to all of them. Um, and if I if I have understood the way Amazon works correctly, um, or hopefully actually maybe I can do this with something that's not Amazon, but that if you decide you want to buy one of these books or, or download one of these movies or something like that, if you click on it, click on the link through through our website, uh, a little bit of that money will come back to Superhero Ethics to help pay for um, our microphones and, and equipment and keeping the keeping the lights on around here. So, um, <laughs> what? But certainly, if you want to find it somewhere else, often do that. You know, I'm sure a lot of these books are going to be in the library and 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 things like that. Other great ways to find knowledge. Um, uh, uh, Rob, what about for you? Do you have a kind of last point you want to bring up or question to ask? The uh, my take from 
from reading a lot of science fiction is it puts you in people's brains and it gives you thought experiments and it gives you these neat, self-contained and sometimes insoluble ethical problems. And that is lacking in a lot of video science fiction. Mm -hmm. There are no, there are no ethical problems in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, everything is straightforward. Like, like, it, and it's very frustrating when they if they hide ethical problems and then remove them because they it, it's just not a thing that anybody really cares about for the most part. Uh, the my pitch is read some good post singularity science fiction because post singularity stuff is weird. Uh, the Quantum Thief is glorious and utterly incomprehensible if you don't know what you know q dot bubbles are <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh there's there's all sorts of these stories out there where you get to dig into what does what does it mean if you can upload people what does it mean if people can't aren't unique you know you encounter your hundredth copy of matthew Westbox, right I'm uh, very because sorry. he got licensed <laughs> well you got licensed to starbucks right and now you serve at every starbucks oh, I, right? I think that is a definition of hell, yes, but I understand the idea. Oh, right, but and like, go, go out and read some post-singularity science fiction. Werner Vinge, um, Haru Ranabajan. Like, there's there's all these people that have been exploring these concepts for years. Uh, I, I mentioned um, uh, Singularity Sky in uh, Laundry Files. It's, uh, why am I... I'm just failing at, at my favorite authors. Mm -hmm. uh, They're there are all these things out there that can provoke you into actually thinking about this, this coming change of what happens when silicone is smarter than carbon, because it, it is inevitable. It's going to happen someday that we will have things that are smarter than us running around. Right. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting thought experiment. I will, um, for any folks who remember when, um, Rob was last on talking about, um, the books of Brandon Sanderson, uh, apparently, Rob, anytime we have a book that needs a glossary to be able to understand it, you're our go-to guy. Um, oh. <laughs> um, but I, I think it, these sound like great works that I definitely want to see if I can sink my teeth into, and I encourage our fans to do the same. Um, I will push back just a little bit on the idea that um, Star Wars does not do ethical questions. Uh, I think it, I think there's actually quite a lot that it dives into. And um, if you check out the Star Wars Universe podcast, uh, Mindless Fair. Plug, that I also run, uh, we dive into those a lot. But I, I, what I will say is, on the question of artificial intelligence, certainly – um, one of my big concerns about Star Wars is the way that, um, you know, the droids, both like C-3PO and, and R2-D2, but especially then the, the droid army in the in the prequels and the like, their suffering is treated 100% as an aspect of, of comic relief and, and given no moral weight whatsoever. And that, that that's never questioned in any way. Um, well, the, the robots aren't people. They're pets. Right. And... Yeah. Well, and I, I, I might be misremembering wrong because again, this was like a long time ago. But if I remember, particularly for the prequels, that was done very intentionally because George Lucas wanted to, to be able to tell a story about war, uh, but in a children's story, and that he thought that if it was our heroes were killing other humans or other sentient life forms, that that would be a problem for what was supposed to be kind of a kids a kids movie and a kids show. And so that they intentionally picked droids as the, the droid army because then, like, you know, you could laugh as they, like, all shot each other by accident and things like that because they didn't have that moral weight at all. So 
cool. Well, thank thank you guys so much for um, <laughs> welcome uh, both being a part of this. This has been a great discussion. Um, to our fans, uh, as always, we we want to, uh, if nothing else, the uh, superhero ethics is building our own open source eth- open source ethics module. Um, we are the programmers of this particular uh, uh, module on AI, and now I'm throwing it out to you for a. Uh, what are the bugs? I, I can't keep doing the technical language. I don't know it. Um, but, um, <laughs> um, uh, we want to hear from you. What are the what? Are, what do you think we got right? What do you think we got wrong? What are um, other other great examples from uh, fiction that you'd want us to dive into? Um, one I know that I was actually wanting us to get into and we didn't even touch was Blade Runner, which I think does some great questioning of of the ethics of AI and how we uh, how we interact with it and stuff like that. So. Um, particularly if your name is Jacob, but, but whatever your name might be, uh, please write in, tell us what you think. We would love to hear your thoughts. Um, because I think this is the, this is the kind of thing that, um, it's, it's going to be an ongoing conversation, but especially because this is a part of science fiction that I think, as you both have pointed out, you know, we have no idea if we're ever going to experience alien life. We have no idea if humanity could, if the, if time travel is theoretically possible. Um, but AI, it seems is at least in some form, very much theoretically possible. So, this is a great co- topic for conversation. So please do write in with thoughts, questions, ideas, anything you want to contribute. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook at Superhero Ethics. You can email us at superheroethics at gmail.com. All that's going to be in the show notes. If you're interested in the TV show, Altered Carbon that I mentioned that really dives deep into similar topics, um, myself and Matthew Carroll are currently doing a, a, a rewatch of it. We're in the middle of season two right now on the Bingers Assemble podcast, which is also part of the Stranded, Pan- Stranded Panda podcast network. You can find links to all of that in the show notes. So Rob, Dan, thank you both so much to our listeners. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Have a great day.